This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Wednesday to you. It's hump day, halfway through the week. We're going to, you know, we're, we're going to enjoy it. Must feel nice to come back to work on hump day. Oh, man, it's such a good day. It's the perfect day to come back to work. Why come back on a Monday? It was a holiday. Why come back on a Tuesday? I was out of town. Come back on a Wednesday. Because the week is almost over. And my son gets home from his LDS mission trip on Friday. So, yes, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Boy, you got a great audience today. Awesome audience. Wow. Okay, sit down, you guys. Got to do a show here. Got to do a show. So much uh, to talk about. A lot of it, just a lot of little stories going on, it seems like. I'm really proud of the kids of Florida. Push them back. It's going to be the children of Florida that are going to break legislature and somehow create a safer school system. It seems fitting. I mean, the people that are often the victims of these horrible tragedies. Somebody's got to do it. And they're, they, kind of, they, they just want a better life. That's all they want. It's, they're just asking for a better life, so they're put, pushing back on legislators. Um, also, uh, I guess, uh, sad news, but he was 99 years old. Um, Billy Graham passed away at the age of 99. And by the way, it was in the, I did, it was on, it was in the movie The Crown, or the television show oh, really? The Crown. Well, I did not know there, there was a character that yeah. was playing him. Yes, I did not know that he and the Queen had met like that. She was intrigued by his ability to speak in public and to <clears throat> kind of convey that message, and she yeah. couldn't do that and to create passion in people. People, it was funny because on the show, people were concerned that she's meeting with this American preacher, mm-hmm. and like well, you're the head of the. Church of England, what are you doing? You and can't she was do like, that. She was very intrigued by how he delivered his message, how he spoke to people, and so she talked to him. He's been, he's been doing this since Harry Truman. Wow. He has evangelized to nearly 215 million people over six decades. That's, that's quite amazing. May he rest in peace. 99 years young. He's reported to have persuaded more than 3 million people to commit their lives to Christianity, and his preaching was heard in 185 of the world's 195 countries. I mean, this is where you've got to ask yourself, what are you doing with your life? What do you mean? (laughs) Because Billy Graham spent all this time— He may not be the best example to compare yourself to if you're looking for, like, overall success. But it does tell you he's just—he was some country bumpkin, and boom— he just kept pushing his purpose, his mission, and changed the world. That's Such a neat. fun phrase, by the way. I could I could use that every day. What's that? Country bumpkin. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of derogatory, but that's fine. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, he wasn't a big city <laughs> boy. So I, I just think that's really cool. One person can influence so many lives and and do it his way, you know, kind of not to get into Frank Sinatra. Really don't. Um, so wow. here's the deal. You don't like Frank? No, I love Frank. Oh, but okay. His song is "I Did It My Careful. Way," and he was worried I was going to start singing. Oh, okay. I really was because you started opening your mouth, then I realized no, that was a yawn. You're yeah, going for a yawn there. <laughs> anyway, 
It's good to be back with you guys. Uh, let's get to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? Uh, the satirical website, The Onion. Yes. They have a headline. Says, oh, boy. A study. 90% of Americans strongly opposed to each other. That's good. Nine out of ten. If someone read that, I don't know if they caught the funny part of it. That's but. great. Uh, other news. President Trump announced Tuesday that he is directing the Justice Department to propose a ban on bump stock firearm modifications, which turn legal weapons into machine guns. There you go. Eh, they act like machine guns. They're yeah. not actually machine guns. Bump stocks were a hot topic after the Las Vegas shooting. They were used in that shooting. It seemed like we had a lot of agreement back then. A lot then. of agreement. It sort of died off. Uh, the Justice Department determined in December that it likely does not have the ability to regulate bump stocks without congressional action. Hmm. So he's directing the Justice Department to propose a ban, but it comes down to Congress to have to do something about it. Well, let's, you know what, this is the perfect time to do something about it because we have a big election in November. They have shown no leaning this way, especially during an election year. And again, it doesn't have to be, we don't have to control guns, but we can control things like a bump stock that make guns more dangerous. Sure. Trump's also talking about raising the minimum age for a gun buyer from 18 to 21. Wow. So you can serve in the military, but you can't own a gun. That'd be the... Other hmm. argument. <clears throat> you can drink. Uh, no, hold on. What's the drinking age? 21. 21, yeah. You can't drink, okay but you with, can own a gun. I'm okay with the age restriction. I like that. Yeah. Because right now in Florida, I believe there's. it's on a federal level too, also. At 18, you can buy a rifle. You can't buy a handgun until 21. What? Well, that's because handguns, I guess, are in drive-by shootings and are more... Right. But it seems kind of odd that you can, but you can own an AR whatever. 15, yeah. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> so yeah, you get crazy. somebody. You can get somebody from far away, just not close up. You should make. Should you be able to own a shotgun? If you, that means you're going hunting, generally. Right. Generally, but then there's a gun's a gun, people who yeah. use a gun in a different way. A new poll by uh, Quinnipiac University, published Tuesday, found that a stunning majority of Americans are in favor of more stringent gun laws. A whopping 97 percent. Of all respondents say they were in favor of universal background checks on all gun purchases, while 67% of all respondents say they were in favor of banning sales of assault weapons. Hold on, 97%. That's what they found. Which would be almost all gun owners. Yeah. So we're talking background checks. Support for these background checks practically uniform across all categories, including race, gender, age group, partisan affiliation. there you go. Okay, so let's just do this. If If everybody's on board... Then let's start proposing legislation, and then let's take names for all of the congressional leaders that don't want anything to do with it. Mm. Just make sure we point that out. We'll have to see how that works. Because mm. the problem is people are for it until it gets down to, what about your rights? And well, then they're like, oh, hold on. Let's talk. I mean, yeah. yeah, background checks, but how does that infringe on my rights? And then it gets into kind of this area where people start well, taking sides. Well, wouldn't that and- make, that would make sense. That would be the place that the people that are not wanting this legislation would always just need to create chaos. And then everyone gives up. Right. Come on. We're so bigger than that. These are, uh, a teen, as teen, teenagers from Douglas High School were traveling to the state capitol in Florida State House on Tuesday, the uh, legislature there voted down a proposal uh, on a, a proposed motion to take up a bill that would ban assault, assault rifles. So it was just the Florida was voting on whether they would have the discussion. I don't know and that they you need no. to ban a gun at first. Right. Right now, let's just make every law that we can 
to make it harder with background checks and get rid of something like a bump stock that only a tiny percentage of people actually need because they're disabled. The rest are using it to, you know, to be able to fire their gun more. No. Not a disability. So th- that, that was happening as the kids were arriving. Yeah. They also passed a... a a uh, amendment, or they improved a bill, uh, making it so there were police officers in every school in the entire state. Mm. Which I didn't know that was hmm. not a thing that yeah. happened all the way through when I was in school. Yeah, right. There was always some resource officer walking around. Uh, yeah, this is in Florida. Yeah. Well, yeah. So it seems like it seems, seems like, like every school across the country needs one police officer in it. Somebody just for you know that that school, but also they have that that influence and that presence in yeah. the school also. Uh, Florida Governor Rick Scott was listed as a featured speaker at the Leadership Forum for the National Rifle Association's May meeting in Texas. The Tampa Bay Times on Tuesday reported that, that Governor Scott's office confirmed the invitation but said no decision had been made on whether he will attend. By Wednesday morning, Scott was no longer oh, on yeah. the list of speakers. He's running for Senate in the state, and it seems like being associated after you had the nightclub shooting, uh, remember the, the nightclub yeah, shooting and yeah. this shooting. May, and the Fort not, Lauderdale airport shooting. Right. That may work against him when he's running for Senate. Well, and apparently all three of those shootings in Florida that last year were all, they were all on the FBI watch list. Right. So this creates a problem for the FBI. They're probably undermanned or and under, they don't have enough personnel. Or they need to reposition some of the 35,000 that work for the FBI. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> North Korean officials pulled out of a scheduled meeting with Vice President uh, Mike Pence at the last minute. His office said the vice president was set to meet with Kim Jong-un's sister, Kim Yo-jong, and another top official, Kim Yong-nam. The meeting was supposed to take place in secret during the Winter Olympics in South Korea. Uh, they said North Korea dangled a meeting in hopes of the vice president softening his message, which would have seeded the world stage mm. for their propaganda during the Olympics. Nick Ayers, his chief of uh, Pence's chief of staff, said. But outside observers were almost universal in their assessment that Pence did lose the propaganda skirmish anyway, especially after Pence managed to disrespect every South Korean by not standing when the unified Korean team entered the Olympic Stadium. Oh, mm. wow. some opinion there. Yeah. Um, now, Pence... Has mm-hmm. flown to football stadiums, yeah, to sit in the box and wait for the inevitable player to kneel so that he could make a spectacle of standing up and leaving. Right, right. The president, if you remember that whole story, the president tweeted praising Mike Pence for leaving before he actually left the stadium, and they told the media, "Stay in the van." The media that was following by uh, the vice president, "Stay in the van. This is going to be a short trip or a short stop." Right. So all that's going showing that this is all orchestrated. What do you think about that? Was there an actually a meeting? Is this something that... Yeah, there was. Were they actually going to have the meeting? Was Pence going to sit down with them, or were they just saying they canceled it? And I don't, I don't know. know. It makes it all very fuzzy when you have other incidences where... I mean, it would have looked really good if they could have had a meeting and because it would have showed the North Koreans were backing down on certain things. Mm-hmm. So, and that we were open to actually talking yeah, about trying. things. Yeah, we're trying. Yeah. Instead, we're... No one's talking. No. Maybe he's just trying to get his steps in for the day. Could be. You know, on his Fitbit. No. Less meetings means they might more a, steps. There might be a White House initiative on steps. Maybe they're doing like a White House Step Olympics. Right. That's great. And he's competing from the other side of the mm-hmm. planet. Uh, finally, a Georgia woman was indicted Thursday for allegedly claiming to be a federal law enforcement agent to get a discount for her Chick-fil-A meal. 
What? Uh, Tara Marie Solemn of Marietta, Georgia, faces two felony counts of impersonating an officer, according to court documents. Police said the incident happened July 5th. She initially tried to convince a worker at the eatery's drive through window that she was a federal agent. It didn't work, so she went inside. Oh, boy. Uh, so she walked up to the counter of the chicken joint, argued with two managers, and uh, uttered expletives with an earshot of a few children, according to the warrant. Uh, Cops said that she flashed a silver badge and a black wallet to the managers to try to prove she was a federal agent. She stated that she was undercover and that for them to ask her to be in uniform would blow her cover and possibly get her killed. Because, you know, she's undercover. undercover. Uh, Solemn called the restaurant chain corporate office to complain and gave them, uh, her name is Agent Solemn, so... At some point, she changed her story, saying that she was actually an agent for the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, known hmm. as the GBI. Uh, the officer wrote, the lesser known GBI. The officer wrote in the warrant that GBI said they had no record of such an agent. Wow. See, I worked at In-N-Out Burger for three and a half years. Were you and, an undercover agent? Uh, I will not disclose that until after my demise. Yeah. Um, so we would get cops coming through all the time, and I can't remember if it was a 50% discount or if we just gave them a free meal. I think it was a free meal. Free meal. And I re- I highly doubt that any official with, with that's a police officer or government employee would throw that much of a stink up about free food. Well, they would just say, "Okay, I'll just I'll just pay." I mean, you could see it if it were donuts. Why? Just cuz those are specially good. But, you know, as Jim Gaffigan points out, you know who else loves donuts? Absolutely everyone. Yeah. yeah. That's true. It's a great point. Yeah. Um, yeah, solid logic there. You can't you don't you don't want to make a stink about free anything. No, I just be gracious when it happens. Yeah. That's the, I mean, that's I the big... I know Zach's surprised, like, what? Yeah. Are you kidding me? For me? Yeah, that kind of thing. That's the big tip-off, that they're not really a cop, as if they're swearing at you because you didn't give them a discounted meal. Yeah. Within earshot of children. Right. Uh, and if she was so worried about blowing her cover, why would she bring, why would she be bringing that much attention to herself? Um, speaking of attention hmm? to yourself, um, what's going on with the <laughs> Olympic team, the U.S. Olympic team? Largest yeah. Olympic team ever gathered for the United States, mm. I guess in a Winter Olympics. Yeah. And they're having trouble bringing the medals home. Mm. Lindsey Vaughn. Not enough doping. Yeah, but that's illegal. The, the Russians have – or yeah, the, the team from Russia that's yeah, not right. actually from the Russian team, but you know what I mean. They have more medals, I think. Norway has 33 medals. They're leading the race. There's, Germany, 24. There's a lot of snow in Norway. Canada – a lot of snow in Canada. Oh, Canada. Canada has an entire northern part 21. that's unused. That's where they train. I know, but there's a lot of snow in the U.S. Not really. Uh, the U.S. has 16. We trail Canada by five medals. Mm. Not that we're just counting medals, but we are. But uh, Lindsey Vaughn, who was supposed to win her, her this race to get the gold, she mm. comes in third. Well, she got a medal. Yeah, got a bronze. It's her last race ever, right? Probably ever. Yeah. It's just... They're struggling. The U.S. men's hockey team? Wah, 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 wah. Well, we left the NHL home. Yeah. They decided not to go. Yeah. but So the amateurs went out and got smacked around. Still. We just need to get tougher hockey players. It's the biggest Winter Olympic the team. Women, the women are, are playing so for the gold medal. I know. That's cool. Yeah. Makes you wonder when, um, like maybe there's going to be a big push at the end and they're going to, you know... Maybe a lot of the medals we're still waiting for. Didn't they just win the cross-country 
race or some race they won that was some huge upset. I didn't see that. What about yeah. the biathlon? I love that. That is, I think, one of the most, ex- I don't know, interesting and exciting. Ski and shoot? Uh-huh. Yeah. They they actually are skiing with guns on their back. While Meanwhile, in the United States, we're talking about we need more legislation on guns. Didn't James Bond do that in about half of his movies? Did he? I don't think he ever got a medal for it, though. No. He also slid. He, he admitted uh, snowboarding, though. He went down on a mountain on a cello case too. He yeah. did. He did. That happened in the eighties. Actually, I used the cello as like a an, an, a to steer. Well, I think actually, <laughs> kind of cool. They blew, I, it, I think that is a new. I think that's a new um, event at the Olympics. Downhill cello. Downhill case. cello sledding. Nice. Yeah, it's good. It's hard to do it without breaking the strings, though. Yeah. I always take my strings off when I play cello on the hmm. slopes. Um, anything else going on, guys? What I mean, I know you missed me yesterday. So you came back to basically this infested studio. Terry and I, it sounds like, are coming down with something fierce. I know, and I'm, I, I already have a sore throat, and I'm thinking hmm. – because I think it's because I was on an airplane with a bunch of people wearing masks. Hmm. Speaking of masks, I kind of look like a raccoon as well. Yeah, what's up with that? I don't know. I've never had this issue before, and now it looks like somebody put, like, pink makeup on binoculars, yeah. and I put the binoculars up to my eyes. Yeah. You know, the old little rascal's trick? It, you look like a little rascal. In fact, Terry even called you that today. Really? You little rascal. Hmm. So it's, it's a tanning bed? Is that what it is? You'd... No, no. I'm going with summer or winter heat. In Utah, dry heat, you're you're drying out, and you've got very delicate, sensitive eyelids. Hmm. Yes, your eyelids are soft. You remember how I had grandma's ankles? You have grandma's eyelids. <laughs> really sensitive, uh, delicate skin. And then you rub your face on your pillowcase, and it just sucks up all the moisture, and it wicks everything away from you, and now you're just a raw... Kind of husk. Husk. Husk of an individual. Husk yeah. is a great yeah. word for it. So anyway, that's the doctor's diagnosis on that. And by the way, I got on an earlier flight. It's amazing how these airlines work. They fill everything up, and then they beg people to not fly with them. It turns into an auction. <laughs> and yeah. then it turns into an auction, and then they resell those seats to the highest bidders. Hmm. It's a racket. But we paid for it to get home early because we found out – we did a reveal. My daughter did a reveal on her twins, and we have a son, a boy, and a girl coming for grandchildren. Whoa! One of each. Congratulations! Thank you. Thank you very much. Did very little to earn that. <laughs> but that's I, like it's a great accomplishment. It's I know a great I accomplishment. But I will now have two granddaughters and a grandson. <sighs> Such a big deal. Mm. And my kids all worked together, and the house was really clean when we got home. And really? the walks were all shoveled. Did you check under the rugs? Yeah. In no, the it, closets? No, everything looks great. It's amazing. Okay. Our kids are maturing. It's a beautiful day. Anyway, uh, that's it. Uh, let's get to our, our guest. Uh, up next, we're going to be talking about, is there a constitutional right to education? Should you, is that a right? We'll be talking about it. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
Although a public school education is something every student in America is entitled to, it's not a constitutional right. Uh, Would this make a difference in America's educational standards if it were to become federal law? Here to speak with us today and talk about it is Derek Black, a professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law. Uh, Professor Law, thank you so much for your time and being with us today. Well, thanks for having me on. Now, this is uh, this is something I have not I, I haven't thought of before. I, I guess a lot of states or most states would have a state law on the right for education for their people, but it's not necessarily a federal law. Is that right? That's right. Our our U.S. Constitution doesn't say anything about education, so there's no specific language there. And people have came up with lots of reasons why they think the court should imply or recognize a you know a right to education even though it's not in the constitution but uh, but the court has never done that before hmm. now talk for the for the rest of us that that don't understand why it would need to be a stated right help us understand legally why what's the difference what would be the difference if we, if it was stated in the constitution yeah well so I maybe just even make that general distinction. So we've got our, you know, our basic bill of rights or the right to free speech, free association, and, you know, those sorts of things to be free from the unreasonable searches and seizures. So we have these rights that are written down in the Constitution. The court always enforces them. But then we have these other rights that are sort of interpretation. So the 14th Amendment entitles us to liberty. Well, what does liberty mean? Mm. And so the court has to, you know, does that mean privacy? Does that mean the right to procreate? Does that mean the right to marry? And so, you know, the court has to imply, or the court does, uh, you know, reason that there are other rights included in our Constitution that aren't specifically stated because, you know, they fit within some other word. But the court has never has never found that education fits, you know, in one of these words like liberty or property or pursuit of happiness or anything like that. Interesting. And then does it become, I guess, um, without it specifically stated, and then then people, uh, attorneys or, or lawsuits would have to go infer that that's part of the right. And so far, I guess none of the none of the lawsuits have worked. Yeah, I mean the court just keeps saying you know that the that the word education doesn't appear there, and they say we understand it's really important and maybe one of the most important things that, that citizens have, but. The importance of a right uh, is not the basis upon which the court's going to say the Constitution protects it. Right? So importance does not equal protection, as hmm. the court says. That what they're really looking for is, you know, is this right grounded in the Constitution in some way? And so, since it's not, um, you know, when people challenge, you know, school funding problems or inequalities, the court applies a very low level of, of scrutiny that says, look, as long as the school or the state has a rational reason for what they're doing, uh, it doesn't matter if it creates inequality. And that's sort of the way it goes in federal court. Um, the only exception to that is if, if there's some intentional discrimination, like if they're trying to discriminate based upon race or religion, the court would look at that carefully. But just, you know, just the fact that folks are getting unequal opportunity, you know, doesn't really raise the eyebrows of, of any federal court. Yeah. Uh, and and then I guess if um, if it's not uh, like in the Constitution, I guess many of our policymakers, if it were in the Constitution, many of our policymakers would then, I guess, feel more forced to, to watch tax policy, watch spending policies when it comes to, to ensuring this right. Yeah, that, that that's exactly right, that you know, they'd have to worry about whether, you know, people are having schools funded in 
incredibly differently across the state, and and that is the case. Um, you know, if you look across the nation, uh, we spend on average about two thousand dollars less uh, per pupil on poor students than we do on everyone else. Yeah. So, um, so there's a pretty big gap there, and, and the reason why that happens is you know poor students live in poor neighborhoods, and you know the state says, well, you know, you've got to most states say you're going to you know, raise all your money locally, and we're not going to help you with that. And so it, it produces these very wild uh, variations in terms of school funding, uh, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you cite in one of your in your article, like the difference where New York may pay eighteen thousand dollars per student, um, Idaho's paying five thousand or five thousand dollars per student. Um, but, but I guess to that would also mean certain groups of people might have less access because it's costing more to, to provide education. You're trying to, I mean, by by suggesting it was if we could get it into the constitution, the federal constitution, it would it would probably increase the likelihood of equality of opportunity. Yeah, that, yeah, that's right. And there's 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 two. So first of all, I mean, the difference between states. Some of that is. Is based upon geography. It obviously costs right. more to buy stuff in New York, but you know, as I point out in my article, that doesn't actually explain the extent of the difference. Right? Some states try hard to fund education. Some yeah. states don't try very hard at all, and geography doesn't explain that. But uh, yeah, if we had a constitutional right, I mean, there's two ways to look at that. It could, it could, it could force a state within a single state to at least treat folks equally. That would be one result, or we could talk about a constitutional right that says everyone is entitled to a minimum baseline of education. Everybody doesn't have to get the exact same thing, but everyone has to get an adequate education. Mm-hmm. Right? And and we don't we don't have any federal law that that requires that. So that would be important, right? It would it would basically uh, tell states, look, you have to exert some particular level of effort. You can't just leave kids to sink or swim. You you need to provide certain opportunities. Is um, I guess because states do pick up this, and um, I'm not sure if it's actually in the state constitutions, but uh, more states for some reason have picked it up. Is it just too hard to make something uh, to to do a constitutional amendment and to and to make it uh, a, a part of the constitution federally? Well, so I mean, there's two things going on. You're correct about the state constitutions. Uh, in fact, all state constitutions uh, do have an education provision. So all the states out there have these mandates and, and 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 language requiring states to do specific things. And you know, there's been a lot of success in in, in some states, uh, but it's been inconsistent. And 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 one of the reasons, maybe why it's inconsistent, is that uh, it's tough for a state judge to tell a state legislature to to do something hmm. um, for technical reasons I won't get into. I would just say one, one obvious example is, you know, like in South Carolina, our state Supreme Court justices are actually uh, elected by the state legislature. So it's kind of hard for our state Supreme Court to be too tough on the legislature for not doing its job when they know that the state legislature can fire them. So... <laughs> Or not elect them, or what what have right. you. Uh, and so, you know, there, there's that problem, and there's other states where you know the people elect judges, and if there's enough people that are mad about tax increases to fund equal education, then you know they they may run against them or what have you. So, you know, we have we have those problems, and and a federal constitutional right to education would sort of eliminate some of that politics, and would just say, look, 
you know, federal judges are, you know, elected for life and not as, not shouldn't be at least as subject to sort of political, political pressures as some of our state judges are. When, when you look at this as an educator, somebody that studied it deeply, what, what do you see was the original intent of the founding fathers when it came to education? Yeah, I mean, I, that's sort of all of my recent work has been looking at this. And I was sort of blown a bit away by what I found. Um, you know, the early stuff at the founding of the United States seems kind of obvious. You know, we have people like Jefferson and Washington talking about how important education was. And we had some of our early states like Massachusetts, you know, in the, in the 1780s passing education clauses. So we saw this commitment, but, you know, public education really didn't get off the ground, um, you know, in, the, in that early period, the late 1700s. Um, but there was just we want it, but we don't have it. But yeah. what really changed was after the Civil War, uh, immediately after the Civil War, uh, we had this huge disparity between the North and the South. That uh, illiteracy rates in the South were, were four times that of the North. And this is just amongst whites, mm. not even including African Americans. And of course, African Americans, it had been a crime for them to read uh, during uh, slavery. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so Congress is looking at this region where Watts have high literacy rates, and we've got these brand-new citizens uh, who are actually a majority in states like Mississippi and South Carolina that are getting ready to go to the ballot box, right? And they want them to know how to read, and they want them to understand how government works and all of that stuff. And so what Congress did, and, and this history has just been glossed over, when Southern states were being readmitted to the, to the Union, Congress said, you've got to do three things. One thing is you've got to let African Americans vote. If you don't, we won't let you back in the Union. Number two, you've got to ratify the 14th Amendment. It's for a new amendment to become part of the Constitution, you have to have a certain percentage of states vote and say yes. And we, they needed the Southern votes for the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection and stuff like that. And the third thing they said is you, you've got to provide public education. And if you don't do it, we're not going to let you back in. Mm. Um, and and that actually became even more explicit across time. So uh, in 1868, the 14th Amendment becomes part of the United States Constitution. And there are still three southern states that haven't been readmitted. It was Texas, uh, Mississippi, and Virginia. Mm. And Congress, in the, in the piece of legislation readmitting them, specifically said um, that those three states – shall never change their education clause or treat African Americans differently. And so I look at this history, which has largely been ignored, and said, look, you know, Congress is, 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 is making a big statement about what the basic rights of citizens are, and education and voting are at the very top, and they're special. And the reason why Congress was doing this is there's provision in our Constitution that says that Congress must guarantee to every state a Republican form of government. That doesn't mean Republican in a political sense. That means you know citizens get to get to engage in self-government. That's basically what it means. And so I make this argument that Congress said voting and education are necessary for self-government. And when it forced that on the states, it also, as a practical matter, defined what the rights of citizenship are. Hmm. Right? They require voting and, and education. And so I make the argument that. In the 14th Amendment itself specifically guarantees citizenship and equal citizenship. And so I make the argument that implicit in the idea of equal citizenship is voting and education. So that that's the wow. argument I've been making. That's actually – and so 
Can, can you see a day that this uh, either gets pushed up again to the Supreme Court where this argument might be made, or is it still going to have to be more of a legislative approach? Well, I think that I think there are a lot of people that were optimistic about that a couple of years ago. Um, you know, they thought there that the composition of the Supreme Court might might change. Uh, there might be a few people that were more susceptible or more amenable to this argument. Um, you know, given the recent appointment, uh, people are, are less convinced of that. Hmm. Um, I, I don't want to be, I, I'm naive in a lot of ways, but because the arguments that I'm making are really saying um, that this is an original, this is the original intent of Congress. This yeah. is actually what we tried to do in 1865, and this is different than some sort of fancy modern ideas that 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 you know um, liberal scholars come up with, uh, which I guess I could be accused of being. But my argument is this was the original intent of Congress hmm. that no state shall enter the union without providing for uh, a public education system that treats everyone equally. And I also point out that. After 1868, which is when the 14th Amendment was enacted, no other state ever entered the Union without an education clause. Before 1868, there were a lot of states that didn't have them. So I I make this argument. It's this magic moment in time where we redefine what citizenship means. And so I'm not asking, you know, I wouldn't be asking the Supreme Court to make up something. I yeah. mean, look, just just do what Congress said in 1868. That's interesting. Uh, what would you suggest to the rest of us, Derek, while we're waiting for this? Um, but if, if we really do want to push education and the importance of education more to the forefront, what does the average citizen need to do? Well, you know... I don't. I don't want to push push politics. I know people have lots of different views about charters and vouchers, and I'm not per se anti charters or vouchers. But I, but I would say this, which is, if if we do have this idea that a that a public education system brings us all together and makes our democracy work, and if we believe that the folks in 1868 were right about that, we ought to be really careful about any policies, uh, supporting any policy that that threatens our traditional public school system, or suggest that, you know what, maybe we can all go into our own little silos and get our own little education in the way we want it and develop our own little ideas. I mean, I certainly agree that we as humans have the right to pursue our own individual interests. But when we're talking about the reason why we have public education, it's to build a stronger community and a stronger democracy. So um, so the short answer is, I think we can't, we cannot back away from a full commitment to our public education system, hmm. and you know that happens in lots of different ways, and we don't notice it because we're so concerned about ourselves as individuals. But I think we need to think about the vibrancy of our democracy as well. Yeah, good stuff, Derek. Thank you so much for your time, your interest, and uh, just your research on this very important topic about right to education. Should we have it? Is that is it a universal right? And uh, it's not on the federal level. States have already, you know, made that happen. Um, but maybe it's time we, we make it a federal issue as well. Boy, so much to learn, isn't there, about uh, just the basic rights that you have and where we, you know, where what we say value, we value and what we say is important to you is usually where the money goes as well. So it's why uh, you kind of need the right and the left hand to work together. We'll continue the journey, folks, doing what we can to help everybody uh, reach a higher level of life and living. This is the Matt Townsend Show. 
Welcome back. You know, we talk a lot about education. It's is it a right? Is it a is it an obligation? What is it? But really, it seems like it's about getting the best job you can, getting the learning you need to be a part of the culture, a part of our country. But there's uh, there's other ways that you can learn these lessons as well. And uh, Terry's got a little uh, a little lesson plan for us. Time Magazine on their uh, website. Yeah, time.com. Time.com. Uh, Ten tough job lessons worth learning by the age of thirty. Okay, so so job lessons. You're you're just talking about you get an education, you get a job, then you go out there to get that job, and some of the things you've either heard or been built up in your mind aren't necessarily true. Oh boy, there's yeah. failures that happen. There are lessons that you learn and move on. So true. Um, the number one they have here is your dream job is a dud. <gasps> Right, so, so you, you think like you found the perfect job, but then it's not. So I good. well, I always have people that say, "Yeah, I really just want to be a television talk show host," and you're like, "Well, good luck with that." Do you like to talk? No, I hate it. I hate no, people. I hate people. I hate talking, and I hate television. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this one, uh, they give an example of a uh, pharmacist. She's 28, scored a pharmacist position right out of school. Wow, yeah. Which is kind of hard at times. But she found a job. Her attraction to the job was the breadth of impact I could have, but there was no time to focus on the individual customer. Right. She's just pushing pills. Yeah. And it just turns into a machine. And so the whole point was she wanted to have this interaction with people and help them. And she can't because that's not the job. Well, and I always thought that would be a fun job because you'd be at the supermarket and everyone would get you get to talk to everyone. And, but really, no, you're just like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty. There's fifty pills. So she had to, you know, switch jobs and find something with her training that would, uh, you know, allow her to do what she wanted to do. And that took some. Now searching. she's selling drugs on yeah, the street. Yeah, now she's, <laughs> she's like a salesperson. But she gets to talk with, uh, as she says, now I'm able to speak to fellow small business owners. And, oh, okay. Mm, that's yeah. nice. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's trouble. Yeah. It, no, but you got, that's, a, that's one of those experiences. You got to learn the lesson. Uh, you didn't adequately prep for an interview. Oh, yeah. I felt that one. You walk in, you're like, I have no idea what you guys are doing. Yeah. Been there, done that. Mm. So you try to, I fake it till you make yeah. it, and that doesn't really work at times. And you can see when the, the interviewer with me, like she had a book open and she was taking notes, and then closed the book, and then we just started talking about my other job that I used to have. And see, I'm like, this isn't productive. This is the thing I've realized in my old age. I'm not, uh, I'm not a schmoozer like I used to be. Mm. Really? So when I was away on this trip. You seem very schmoozy. No. Really? Uh, Because schmoozy is kind of nonstop. You've got to work your clients and schmooze them and wine and dine them. And I don't wine nor dine Mm. very well. Well, you wine quite a bit on the show. That's a different wine, I think. mm. think Number three is you were too eager to say yes. Yes. So you get a new job, yes. you want to have a good impression, you say yes to everything, and all of a sudden you can't deliver because you just right. took on too much. There is a point. you got to just say no. We need you to work 100 hours a week. Sure. Yes. I mean, 100. Why not 200? <laughs> well, that won't work for us. Uh, four was you got passed over for a, pr- a promotion or uh, you were laid off. That happens. Bad. Yeah. I've been there. These are all lessons we need to learn. You have a nightmare boss. Oh, I've never had that. Have I had that? I've had a couple that were were tough bosses. 
Like yeah. when they'd walk in the door, you're like, oh, because they're going to make you do Great, a bunch of things. The boss right? is here. But also, I only saw them like twice a month. There oh, you yeah. go. So that was great. Our boss is great. Are oh, you yeah, only you saying have... that because you see him twice a month? Yes. Okay. You have, you have to put that in there when you talk about bosses. <laughs> oh, our boss is awesome. Uh, you score a high-paying job and you hate it. Uh, so you feel stuck, right? You finally you... make it to the big league and then you're like, I don't want to do this. So then you have to figure out how do I make it work. And that's when they talk about either the um, associations at work. Yeah. You like the people, therefore it kind of compensates for the the work being a drag, or what's the end benefit of my work? Who does it That's benefit? when Jess started playing softball for the team, the the BYU broadcasting team. Oh, right, right. I gave my blood, sweat, and tears to that team. And they still lost. How much – and then, then at some point you have to look at it and say, how much does money actually mean right, to me? What's right. the importance of that? Can I back off, get something I enjoy more, and yeah. live with less? Great, great question. There's a there's a, another question you should ask is how much would I pay to have this whole experience again? Mm. Mm. So one of the ways you know that it's not something you want anymore is if you wouldn't pay to go have the same experience, like then you probably are done. Wow. Okay. It's kind of scary, but real. Uh, seven was you covered up a mistake when you should have come clean. Instead of trying to wish away an error when you do finally fess uh, yeah. up, recommend making no excuses and placing no blame. I had a job where my actions, I was the only person doing this job. Oh, boy. So you right? were totally responsible. So it was totally me. And I remember like listening to myself as I made a mistake and somebody came in and said, you did this. And I went, no, I didn't. And I'm like, well, I'm like- the only person that does this. Of course I did. <laughs> And the, the, my boss yeah. looked at me and said, listen to what you just said. Nobody else does this job. You're the only one who does this task. Who else would have made the mistake? And I went, good point. So from that point, point on, whenever I, somebody said something, I would just say, okay, how do we fix it? Yeah. Just move on to yeah. the conversation. Get past the, That's good. The, the, what, the instinct to protect yourself and preserve yourself. That's what's just, bad with radio because they can just replay it. And they're like, well, you're the one that said it. Yeah, you're right there. <laughs> it wasn't me. I, <laughs> no, that was Jeff. Jeff sounds just like me. Uh, you blew a big presentation. Uh, yeah. Matt, you've done this constantly. I mean, yeah. in the past. I don't know that I've ever blown a presentation, but I've been less than prepared for certain presentations. Ooh. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's just, oh, there's nothing worse than that feeling, that you could have done it so much better. Mm-hmm. And somehow what you did was yeah. lacking and there's no way to fix it. And Oh, that's bad. This says, this says just own it and decide how you could do it differently next time. Yeah. What else can you do? I must have done that quite a bit in school because I still to this day have dreams that there's a class I didn't go to all semester or I'm in a play and I don't remember any of my lines. Oh, wow. Then yeah. the others, I'm falling down an elevator shaft and losing my teeth. <laughs> Always losing <laughs> your teeth. very personal. Uh, nine, your friends or enemies with the wrong coworkers. Yes. You're friends with the wrong guy in the office yeah. and you're kind of connected to maybe some bad habits, behavior, personality, whatever. Or you're enemies with the person that probably has the most influence on your job. And This oh. is like Survivor. Yeah. Totally. Forming alliances. No, totally. 
It says it's not always easy to spot the good eggs from those who are insincere or who would have a bad reputation that could tarnish yours. And if yeah. you've made the professional enemy, their impressions could come back to haunt you later in your career. There you go. Oh, so that's... letting your guard down too much in the workplace presents a challenge, but also a great opportunity to ref- uh, redefine who you want to be professionally moving forward. And it, you don't know. You just walked in. Yeah. I don't know. I'm new here. Next thing you know, you're you know out in the trunk of some guy's car. That's how it ends. <laughs> uh, and finally, you disagreed with your boss in the open. Uh, so you're in front of everybody and you disagree. And I I think I did that once. Yeah. And then I got dressed down in the hallway in front of half the building. Yeah, that was funny. Yeah. I didn't talk to my boss for about nine months. <laughs> I'm going to go do my job and go home. And if I'm you need to talk gonna... to me, I'm over here. I'll be over here doing my job that gets me in trouble. That was the thing I was taught in my managerial training classes that I took is you always take the employee aside privately and discuss if there is a problem or if there's a a behavior that needs to be changed. You don't do it in public. No. You don't shame them in front of her. Likewise, the employee, you challenge your boss in that way, you're, you're undermining the boss. See? So you got to kind of balance this out and figure out the best way to, to have a disagreement that's usually in private. Oh, that's good stuff. Good stuff. See, these are the lessons we give you right here on the Matt Townsend Show. And we will continue the joy more straight ahead. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143. Hey, in the here's not here's what you shouldn't be doing file. Uh, boy. Unbelievable story coming out of Philadelphia. Chinese are angry. The authorities are livid over the theft of a thumb from a 2,000-year-old terracotta warrior that was on loan to the U.S. Museum, calling the perpetrator to be severely punished. They don't want him just to be fined. They want him punished. The ancient statue is valued at $4.5 million, considered a priceless part of China's cultural heritage. And uh, some guy walks in and just says, I think I'll take the thumb. Isn't it a thumb for a thumb? An eye for an eye? I think, yeah. But I don't know if that translates from a clay thumb to a human thumb. Yeah, I think that's the problem. Okay. Uh, Delaware resident Michael Roana was arrested last week, U.S. officials said, accused of stealing the thumb in December during an ugly sweater party hosted by the museum. (laughs) During the event, Rowana and a few of his friends entered the closed terracotta warrior exhibit. And after his friends left, Rowana took a selfie with one of the statues, according to the surveillance footage and court documents. He then put his hand on the left hand of one of the warriors and snapped something off, the document said. Rowana pocketed the warrior's thumb and took it home with him to Delaware that evening. They should take the entire Terracotta Warrior and divide it by that $4.5 million. Oh. So they should figure out how much that thumb is worth. That's unbelievable. Have you seen the Terracotta Warriors? Yes. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, they've, they, yeah. And none of them are the same. They're all different. So that's he right. really broke off a thumb that's truly unique. So Rowana is, he's in a lot of trouble. The FBI has asked uh, Rowana to hand over the thumb, which he did. And now, you know, now there's going to be a, a trial. And hand over your ugly sweater. And for wanna, heaven's sake, I want to win at the company Christmas let's party next year. Not ever have another party like that. Oh, just unbelievable. What people, they just don't, I guess, I don't know. No one's thinking. Not thinking. Uh, well, 
you know, thumbs up to the FBI. And maybe the Chinese are right here. Let's let's get serious about this. Anyway, we're doing what we can to help you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Wednesday morning to you. Uh, Back at it. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is gathered. And we're doing what we can to help you through this week. It's hump day. Uh, Wednesday, which means the day you're halfway through, folks. Not that you're just only trying to get through the week. You're trying to enjoy the week. Some of us are. Yeah. Some of us are are sick. In fact, I walk in, it feels like a hospital ward here. What is the deal? And I've tried everything. Have you? I've taken Alka-Seltzer Plus, the pill form, and the, the they were so big that yesterday as I was leaving, it got stuck in my throat for about five minutes. Oh no! It was pretty scary. Did you did you need uh, did you need the Heimlich maneuver? I could have. Helped. No, I tried. I tried. I, I don't want to get into yeah, the nitty gritty no, of that. But that. Uh, yeah, I've I've gurgled salt water. Wow! I've done the emergency. Yeah. So I've it's done, a throat problem. I've done ibuprofen. Mm. I've done allergy pills. Oh! I've done orange juice. Ah. I've done. Whew, I've done steps. Wow. Well, that's kind of – I mean, that's unrelated. That, I don't but, think that will help. Yeah. Um, so this is scary. What if we lose you? Well, I, it's I don't, it's not that bad. Well, what if you die? I mean – Oh, dear. I mean, if you – I mean, I, there's it's going around. So should we walk around every day with that idea in the back of our minds? What if you died today? 4,000 – apparently the flu is taking 4,000 people a month, I think. Or a week, maybe a week. What are you doing? Anyway, and they say a lot of it starts with the throat. It's not so that's, bad if it's in your lungs. That's where I have it the worst. But once it's in your throat, and then they say the worst sign is when you start to have your eyelids start to get very raw and red. Mm. What anyway. about canker sores? I've got several of those. Yeah. Well, it's been nice working with you, Jeffrey. <laughs> so, so good to be with you. Um, the tragedy, not a tragedy. I mean, he's 99 years old, but, but Billy Graham passed away. The great. Uh, Did you ever see him? Evangelist. I never saw him live, no. But um, I remember watching him on television. I remember him being. He was a very. Uh, like, political person as well. He, he was the. Like, the. I don't know, the spiritual leader to many presidents as well. Several presidents, Lyndon Johnson, George Bush, Bill Clinton, relied closely on his spiritual counsel. He was tall and handsome with a disarming, ah, shucks, demeanor. You know, he was also instrumental in turning uh, Louis Zamperini's life around, too. Louis Zamperini, the guy from the film and book Unbroken. Yes. The Olympian who was captured and then when he got home, he had a lot of drinking issues and you know, n- n- totally understandable what he went through when he was coming back right. because he was in a prison camp. He's referred to as the Protestant Pope. Wow. 
He is reported to have persuaded more than 3 million people to commit their lives to Christianity, and his preaching was heard in 185 of the world's 195 countries. I think you said it. The more you talk about him, the more it's like, ooh, what have I done with my life? I mean, seriously, we've got to pick our games up, boys. I mean, Jeff here is about to die, and what has he done with his life? This is going to be really funny when I come in dead tomorrow. (laughs) If you come in dead, I will be so sad. But <laughs> I, think I will just say, I think you'd be more shocked and horrified than anything else. I'll be like, "What's with the dead guy?" <laughs> Terry, can you get rid of that dead guy for me? I don't like him looking at me. He's looking at me funny. Anyway, don't get, don't die. We can't have that. Let's get to the headlines now, Terry. What else should we be paying attention to? Jared Kushner, President Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor, is resisting giving up his access to the highly classified information that he has access to in his job, prompting an internal struggle with Chief of Staff John Kelly, according to The New York Times. Kushner is one of a dozen White House officials operating under interim security clearances because of issues raised by FBI during their background checks, uh, mainly the fact that his family has debt in the millions to other countries. Yeah. And that kind of leaves him compromised on some level. In a memo issued on Friday, Mr. Kelly said that he would revoke top clearances for anyone whose background check had been pending since June 1st or earlier. Kushner, concerned that Mr. Kelly has targeted him personally with the directive, has told colleagues at the White House that he is reluctant to give up his high-level access. Kushner has insisted that he maintain his current level of access, including the ability to review the daily intelligence briefing when he sees it. Kushner runs the White House Mideast peace efforts and is one of the few Trump officials who has access to the president's daily brief, which is the most sensitive of U.S. intelligence well, products. And it's a very run- well may be the only one reading it. According to reports, it needs to almost be acted out by members of the intelligence <laughs> community so the president is but entertained. If he's not, if he doesn't have clearance, he shouldn't be reading it, period. He, he has interim clearance. No. And they've been letting him read it for over a year now. So what's the big deal? Yeah. And Kelly's like, well, you need to have clearance. But he feels like this is personal because Kelly doesn't like Jared, and it just turns into a soap opera. Oh, boy. So Kelly, who has been privately dismissive of Mr. Kushner since taking the post of chief of staff, but has really taken him on directly, has made no guarantees, saying that only that the president's son-in-law will still have the access he needs to do his job under the new system. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders on Saturday, or what, yesterday's briefing said, I can tell you nothing that has taken place will affect the valuable work that Jared is doing. Which is a nice dodge. Here's the deal. As always. You're the, pres- you're the president of the United States, right? You, there have got to be thousands of people that could do just as great of a job as Kushner's doing, but actually could get clearance. And they yeah. would work there at your beck and call. Let's just, why don't, just to protect yourself, make sure everybody's legit. No, it's family. Yeah. Family's the only people you can trust. That was by... John Kennedy, talking about Bobby Kennedy. There you go. Or The Godfather, if you want to go that direction, too. Okay. <laughs> Depends on your leaning, right? It's either yeah. the Kennedys or, you know, whatever. Uh, Senator Pat Toomey yeah. said on Tuesday that he plans to reintroduce his legislation that would expand background checks for gun purchases. 
The initial bill, which Toomey introduced in 2013 with Senator Joe Manchin, will did not advance. It does. It does feel like we have a shot at getting a bit of momentum on background checks. Toomey told the Washington Post, "The new effort comes as the nation mourns the death of 17 people who were killed in a shooting last week at that high school in Parkland, Florida. It's insane that people who aren't allowed to board a plane can buy an AR-15. If you're on the yeah. no-fly list, you can still get a gun. You can get it. You can get on the A. You can get an AR-15, but you can't vote." Mm. Is that right? No, you can't drink. You can oh, vote you at 18. Earlier Tuesday, President Trump asked the Department of Justice to draft a rule that would ban so-called bump stocks, which allow automatic weapons to fire like automatic ones, and he or semi-automatic weapons to fire like automatic ones. Also, right. he's lo- he the, wants to explore raising the age limit from 18 to 21 for firearms. Now, yeah. Again, we had a lot of people against bump stocks. That seemed like a no-brainer after the Las Vegas shooting mm-hmm. where the guy was just shooting people at will and then nothing happened. Where did that legislation go? It's sitting on somebody's desk. Hmm. Okay. Stalled in committee is the term they use. Uh, other news. Our eyeballs apparently contain information that could revolutionize cardiovascular medicine. What? Artificial intelligence software developed by Google in conjunction with its biotech subsidiary company, Verily, can scan retinal images to predict heart disease at nearly the same accuracy rate as traditional blood tests. Really? This is from uh, UPI. Verily, the, verily, yeah, I the, say unto you. The findings published Monday in the journal Nature Biomedical Engineering explain that Google's AI makes it makes its predictions by examining images of the back of the patient's eye in order to develop a profile of the patient, oh, including wow. several characteristics that could determine cardiovascular risk. From the retinal images, Google AI can determine within impressive degree of accuracy a patient's age, gender, blood pressure, smoking status, as well as uh, the past occurrence of major cardiovascular events. How cool is that? So maybe an eye scan instead of a blood test, which means you would know now instead of in a couple hours when the blood test. Well, and not invasive. You don't need to stick me. You just scan your eye and then tell you. Way to go, Google. Well, we'll see. But what about the day that you just get your eye scanned and it can tell you a hundred things? Mm. Oh, that's neat. And scary. Yeah, but so much better than all the blood draws. <laughs> Finally, if NFL players can have junior, senior, or the third on the back of their jerseys, uh-huh. then why can't Laurent Devarney Tardif add MD to his? That's what the Kansas City Chiefs lineman wants to know. He's about to take his medical exam in May after studying medicine at McGill University to become a physician. And he had this to say. He goes, I want it to be put Devarney Tardif, MD, on my jersey. He said, I've already started a conversation with the That's league office cool. about it. And he goes, they say that in, anything's possible. Uh, he goes, probably. So there, were, there was a guy that played in the XFL. Yeah. He went by the name in the XFL of He Hate Me. Hmm. <laughs> He wanted he hate me on his NFL jersey. They said no because that's not your name. Yeah. So there's they have some, you know they they don't want just anything on the back of the well, jersey. Well, he could put he help you. They've also MD. limited. <laughs> they've also limited what fans can go to the NFL website and put on a jersey. Yeah. You can put whatever you can just put whatever name you yeah, want. Yeah. You don't so want that's just there's like that's obscene and bolder things going out. So they kind of limited all that down too. So. Uh, they want to. Uh, he want. He's gonna. He says probably given his accomplishment to balance medical school and playing in the NFL, along with the uh, respect we give doctors. They're saying this this could be something that could happen. Sure. And on the back of his jersey, it'll say MD. I like the idea. 
Yeah. Because it promotes the fact that you can do other things. Like Steve Young got a law degree. His would be JD. Right. Steve Young, comma, JD. Or he could just hmm. do Esquire. Esquire. Yes, Q. <laughs> it's – I think that's a cool – so he got his medical degree while right. playing football. Well, he's going to take the test here in the next couple of weeks. That so. is amazing. That's huge. Like, again, back to what have you been doing with your life lately? Well, hmm. my son – well, yeah. you don't want to know. It's just video games. And you don't see those as being important. But in a bonding sense with your child. Yeah. No, that's great. When you discover new characters with new superpowers, your son is very excited. And he says, thank you, Dad. Thank you for achieving that goal. Hmm. Yeah, I must be missing something. Then, then there were some robots that we fought. And then Professor X was in his wheelchair. And my son drove him off the side of a building. He just sort of floated no, down that's to the fine. street. Once it was a, fun. That's fine once a week. Yeah, sure. it was great. So what do you do the rest of the week? I, I try to build him up in, in his confidence, build him up in his ability to learn and no, grow as good. a person. Yeah. That, no, that, all of that is very good. So you, emotional... what you're doing is very healthy, oh. very important stuff. Thank you. I was really talking more about Jeff. Well. Hmm? <laughs> I mean, the guy, is, the guy is days away from death. Yes. According to what I see. He's whisking away. And I'm not even that kind of doctor, but he's trying. he's touching his eyes. Mm-hmm. And once you start touching the eyes, when you've got his conjunctivitis thing going on. Conjunctivitis. So um, so are, are you looking to be more um, – have more achievements, Matt? Because you no, seem to bring this up quite a bit today. It's like just, you haven't achieved enough in your life. No, it's not achievement. It's just like where are you focusing your life? Mm. What is your highest contribution to life? What are you bringing to the table? You, for example, are bringing a healthier child. Mm. Jeff bringing a virus. All right. He's not even awake. He can't even keep his eyes open. I found some new sunglasses yesterday. Can I borrow those? Sunglasses? My eyes are kind of swelling shut. We have a, we have a big meeting today that we're going to, and I'm worried that if I sit by you, everyone's going to be looking at us. <laughs> What's wrong with that guy? Why is he sitting next so to I want that you guy? To, I'll, I'll let you wear – I won't let you wear my sunglasses, but we will find you a pair of sunglasses. Just let me borrow them so that when my eyes are forced closed during the meeting, it won't look like I'm sleeping. See, Matt, Although that might be a side benefit. This goes back to the job tips we were talking yeah. about earlier where you're friends or enemies with the wrong coworker. Right. You got to be careful today. No, totally. If you you're don't seen know with if, Jeff – You may have picked up the guy with the virus. The carrier, they call him. And then you—they call me the carrier. Yeah, I thought some people call me the space cowboy. Patient zero, I think, was the accurate term. But Mm. he was just trying to soft pedal it a little bit. But if you're next to patient zero, you're essentially patient zero. Well, then everyone else will look at me like, "Oh, hey, he hangs out with the sickly one." Mm. Gotta be careful. (sighs) It's hard to choose. You gotta navigate office politics. Choose your friends wisely, and choose your coworkers even more wislier. Right. That's sound advice. Thank you. Thank you. All of a sudden spun into a coach's corner. Put that on a meme. Wow. Mail it. Hey, Jeff, do you have any empty news for us? Anything we should be – can you even open your eyes enough to read one? <laughs> I've got a Braille version here, um, thankfully. So um, have you ever wondered what would happen 
if you were speeding at, let's say, 50, 60, 70 miles per hour, yeah. and all of a sudden you just pulled that emergency brake. Have you ever been compelled to do that? Yeah, yeah. Have you ever done it? When the kids were in the back seat. <laughs> I've actually done it at a, in a, with someone else, with a race car driver. Really? He did it, and, and we spun around. Okay, well, that turned out better Terrifying. than what happened here. So state police at York, Pennsylvania, reported Monday that on January 23rd, Charles Jolene III, mm. I guess he would put that on his, you'd have to get the third on his jersey if he's a mm-hmm. football player. He started arguing with his 18-year-old girlfriend while she was driving. Jolene got so angry, he reached over and pulled the emergency brake lever while the car was going 50 to 60 miles oh, wow. per hour. The locking brakes immediately threw the car into a skid. It rolled over and hit a bank. Reynolds said Jolene crawled out of the wreck and ran away without trying to help the woman, by the way. Wow. She was taken to the hospital for treatment for her injuries. And uh, Jolene, 23, of Delta, was arrested the next day. What a so there you go. That's, bad date he was. That's what can happen when Don't you pull the emergency brake. This guy was driving a black Corvette. With nitrous oxide, is that what it is, in it? And he said, hey, put your seatbelt on. This is going to be really fun. And we – I've never gone faster in my life. (laughs) And then he uh, slowed down to a safe enough speed, turned the car handle, pulled the emergency brake, and we did a complete like 180 turn. It sounds fun. But, I mean, this story is just another example of why you don't get in arguments in cars. No, uh uh-uh. It's dangerous. And there's got to be a better way to do it than at 60 miles an hour. Absolutely. Especially you're ready, when you're not a professional driver. You ready for a good uh, Sasquatch story? Oh, I, I love a good Sasquatch story. So Claudia Ackley is positive that she and her two daughters came across Bigfoot in a tree in Southern California last year. Mm. But when she called different state authorities to report the sighting, she got the same response. Nope. They told her, you saw a bear. As a result, the 46-year-old has filed suit against the state for failing to recognize Sasquatch as a distinct species. Huh. He looked like a Neanderthal man with hair all over him, per Ackley, who says this is the second sure sighting of Bigfoot she has made. Hold on. She's seen Bigfoot twice. Apparently. Hold on. The rest of us have never seen him, and she gets to see him twice? Absolutely. Okay. You might be looking at uh, Sasquatch right now, actually, because he had, according to her, solid black eyes. I, I have solid red eyes right now. I, I don't think that's Sasquatch. Really? Isn't that Louis Armstrong? Yeah, they call him Sasquatch. I, I don't it's think they call him Sasquatch. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he had no express. so he had solid black eyes, no expression on his face at all. He did not show his teeth. He just stared at the three of us. The more I read this, the more it's starting to sound just like me. It, it, no it, expression. Yeah, I don't you. have the I don't have the the black eyes, but I have solid red they, eyes. They don't call Louis Armstrong Sasquatch. Not showing you my teeth. They call him Satchmo. Yeah. No, 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 no. That's Sasquatch. an offshoot of Sasquatch, isn't it? No, he's not, and he's not with us anymore. 
So she didn't see Louis Armstrong. Uh-uh. Okay. Man, wouldn't that be cool, though, to see Louis <laughs> Armstrong out in the woods? So it says the three then safely walked away. Among other things, the lawsuit says the state is endangering the public by not recognizing Bigfoot and calls on it to manage this wildlife species and protect its habitat. Hmm. In the meantime, Ackley is leaving fruit and snacks out, along with the voice-activated book that includes recordings of words like fur and candy and samples of each in an attempt to communicate. What is she thinking? She's saying, you guys aren't doing your job in protecting everybody from this animal, and yet she's feeding this animal and teaching it to talk. Well, she's going to be in for a big surprise. You You don't, like, poach and, like, leave out food for this thing to come eat. Maybe this is how how uh, Louis Armstrong learned to sing. Oh, what a talent! Somebody left out some old records. Satchmo, of some jazz musician, not Sasquatch. Different, different. Hey, we will continue uh, the journey straight ahead. We're going to be talking about how you can actually detect someone's trustworthiness just in their voice. Do you buy it? Well, we've got the researcher that will be talking about it straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. is a simple word that we say all the time, right? But in one word, our character is judged or we judge those around us. The sound of trust in our voices is an important aspect of our person because we don't want to associate with someone that might deceive us, right? Well, here to talk about some research he's been doing is Belin Pascal, who is a PhD, a professor at the University of Glasgow and the head of the Voice Neurocognition Lab. He and his team look to see how much uh, power a simple word can have and how we can actually judge a person's trustworthiness by the sound of their voice. Uh, Dr. Boleyn, thank you so much for being with us today. No problem. My pleasure. This is, uh, to me, this is such an interesting thing. So your research is is showing that um, we can actually hear, based on, I guess, uh, the sound of someone's voice, we can detect if they're trustworthy or not. Well, not exactly. Um, we, when we hear someone, a new voice, say hello, for example, uh, even in a very brief word, we form an impression of the personality of that voice. Hmm. And what is, what is really interesting is that uh, different listeners agree on that impression. So there's high uh, agreement on, yeah, this voice sounds trustworthy or this voice uh, sounds competent or attractive. But now it doesn't mean that these impressions are correct. I mean, we can, we might very well think, agree, everybody agree on the voice and find it trustworthy. And in fact, the person is not trustworthy at all. So we're not saying that we can detect actual personality traits. But uh, listeners form personality impressions when they listen to voice. Interesting. And I think that's very important to be aware of. And and we agree. I mean, and uh, we we form kind of uh, an evaluation of, of a personality trait, but we also, it sounds like, we, we kind of are accurate together, at least. Yes, exactly. So uh, it's not just random impressions. It's, uh, it's something that, that is in the sound of the voice that we are able to detect and that uh, leads us to 
think, oh, that, that person uh, sounds really trustworthy or that person sounds rather dominant. And, and so what we've shown is that, uh, first, these impressions are very robust, even in a single word. So a, a single hello mm. is sufficient for listeners to agree on the personality impressions. And further, we've shown that really these, all these multiple impressions uh, boil down to two essential traits that are kind of orthogonal uh, personality impressions, that, which is the, the sense of trust in the voice and the sense of dominance. Hmm. Talk based on these two components, essentially, we can explain a range of, of personality traits. And talk about how you did the research, because I think, I think that's uh, interesting as well. Yeah, so in the first step, we, we just had the uh, listeners on Internet just rate on a given trait, such as competence, uh, a number of different voices. Uh, and then we showed, uh, doing analysis of uh, these multiple ratings, that, uh, yes, indeed, there are really strong uh, agreements uh, between listeners on this personality. So now you know that. Next step is, okay, how can I modify the voice to uh, generate the desired imp- personality mm. impression? A little bit like we do with facial makeup, where we enhance certain traits, appear more attractive or more competent, more serious, depending on, on that. Can we do this with the voice? Can we use the fact that now that we know there's this acoustics basis for the personality impressions, can we actually manipulate it, modulate it uh, to suit our needs? And so in the second step, we used morphing techniques to generate a continuum of voice between prototypes that were made by averaging together Voices that were rated as trustworthy, we take several trustworthy voices together, we average them, we make a kind of a trustworthy average, and we did the same thing with untrustworthy voices. And then when you do the continuum between those voices, the question was, okay, when we manipulate the acoustics, is it also going to change the personality impressions? And in the second step, we ask 500 listeners to rate this continuum of voices that we generated between prototypes of trustworthy and untrustworthy voices. Mm. And, and the results was, were really amazing. Yeah, what did you find? You can really mod- modulate as if we were turning a, uh, on, on, on the button, uh, really the impression more or less trustworthy as we manipulate this uh, acoustic in voice. So we can manipulate really it. Potential. Wow. Yeah, we can really uh, modulate the personality impression. We can... Uh, we induce by changing the, the acoustics in voice. So this is how we would end up manipulating one another. Is it, I, I guess I could learn to manipulate my voice to be more trustworthy if I just knew the equation or the I guess the the right the right uh, numbers to play with. Yes, exactly. Uh, manipulating is a is a big word. I mean, it's yeah. a little bit like more modulating or. Yeah. Enhancing a little bit like, again, we do with facial makeup, where we enhance some of our features um, to make them change a little bit the, the, the impression of personality they induce. Well, there's the potential now to do the exact same thing with the voice and to uh, not manipulate, but modulate to change slightly uh, the, the personality impression of a new voice will induce in listeners. Where does this come from? Because it sounds like we we almost have this universal standard 
in a way of trustworthiness or what we deem as a trait of trustworthy or we deem as a trait of dominance or of competence um how how do how do all of us get on the same page as to what modulation equals trustworthiness mm-hmm. well we we still don't know for sure but uh, clearly it seems that the, the phenomenon is very uh, wide ranging and uh, fairly independent of gender, for example, we see very similar uh, responses for male or female listeners, uh, suggesting that this is very an evolutionary ancient mechanism that has evolved maybe uh, along millions of years where our ancestors were living in social groups. And it was very important to be able to evaluate very quickly, uh, on one hand, the, the trustworthiness, the, the intentions of, a, of an individual uh, towards us, good or bad intended. And on the other hand, dominance, the, the ability of, a, of that individual to act upon these intentions. So maybe uh, along these millions of years of, of living in social group and the complexity of it, uh, we've evolved these mechanisms to evaluate personality, to make these first impressions that sometimes can, could perhaps have, have led to uh, increased survival. Hmm. Again, we're speaking with uh, Dr. Belin Pascal, who is a professor at Glasgow University and the head of the Voice Neurocognition Lab, also the author of multiple published papers. He's speaking with us live from Marseille, France, about his research on the sound of trustworthiness. And it, so it's, it's interesting. Could I be born with like a vocal pitch that just naturally might make me sound less trustworthy? So, to others, um, from what we we seem to 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 learn from uh, our result is that the impression of trustworthiness is actually something that can be modulated consciously. So it's not a question of having a low voice or or high pitched voice. It's really more uh, the impression of trust is more associated with the modulation of, huh. of our of tone of voice. Do, how do we speak? do we say hello with a monotone voice or we say hello. The really the most effective hello that we could those, those that were rated uh, as really the most trustworthy sounding were those where there was a huge change in the pitch of the voice, starting very high, hello, and then descending and then rising very sharply at the end, hello. Yeah. And this modulation in the pitch that I mean can be can be done, can be trained, can be uh, if, uh, performed consciously. This is what seems to be driving the, uh, these personality impressions. Oh, interesting. Well, Belin, we appreciate you. We, uh, we're having a hard time with your phone now, and so it's a little harder to understand exactly what you're saying about the, the modulation. But what I was picking up is the idea that we – um, it's not so much about your pitch, it's, it's how you modulate. And the modulation is more of an intentional act. Let's, uh, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll do a little coach's corner um, and be talking about other ways to build trust in your relationships. Belin Pascal, thank you again for your time, your uh, great insight. And we'll continue to look forward to more work that uh, will come out of your um, laboratories as well. The sound of trustworthiness. And really, maybe it comes down to also what your intentions are, your motives. Are you trying to modulate in a way to make people trust you? Are you trying to be more manipulative? We'll we'll continue the journey right here on The Matt Townsend Show.
I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Welcome back. You know, when we talk about the fact that you you can hear um, the tonal qualities of the the trust trait, personality trait, um, isn't that amazing how advanced we are as human beings? We really are fine-tuned machines. And these machines that we all end up uh, playing and, and, and somehow we all are a part of the same culture where we can pick up those traits together. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. And to think that – remember, it was, it was a, another trait that we've designed. We've kind of grown in order to be more social animals, right? I mean we, we've grown and, and developed ourselves um, into this ability to read the tonal quality of somebody and know if we trust their modulation or not. And uh, also we can see if we trust their dominance or not and if we can trust their competency or not. So if that doesn't tell you that we are born to be connected social beings, I don't, I don't know what would. We are uniquely um, developed and, and prepared to be with people. We have um, – uh, we've learned from rhesus monkeys and other uh, research that's been done that we have certain abilities to pick up on um, – on the ability to read people's uh, nonverbal uh, affect and, and emotional affect. We have the ability to actually have mirror neurons where if I'm watching somebody in pain and my brain is uh, actually watching somebody that's, that's sad, like, for example, the shootings in Florida or any of the shootings uh, that we, and you're watching and you're feeling very empathetic and very caring toward another, we could go into your brain and we would notice that you are in the brain center or the part of your brain that would actually relate to the human emotion and the feelings and that you are actually mirroring the feelings of other people. We've learned that from studies with monkeys and other, um, and other primates. And, and even we all know that for some odd reason, we're fine until someone else starts crying. And once someone starts crying that we really love and we care about, for some reason, our emotion starts to kick in and we start to cry. What that tells you, again, is you're wired to connect. And we can try to pretend like we're not. We can try to outthink it. We can pretend like we don't care. But the reality is we care. And we've got to figure out a way, I believe, to start uh, not just hoping that we can somehow have a shortcut to trusting someone and creating trustworthiness, but maybe what we need to create really more than anything is more of an ability to actually grow trust with other people. So think about it in your life, in your relationships. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? There is uh, there's a great book out, and he's been on the show many times, uh, two or three times actually, Stephen M. R. Covey, where we've talked about the speed of trust. And trust uh, to Stephen Covey and Stephen M. R. Covey was two things always. Character, which means you, you have the integrity and the character to do what you say you're going to do. You really just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. And we tend to trust people that have that. But you also have to have the competency. You have to know what on earth you're doing. It's not enough to trust somebody that's just really nice. They also have to bring competency. So think about that with the people around you in your life. Are you trustworthy to your kids? Do you know how to be their friend? Do you know how to connect to them? 
Some of us as parents, we just don't know how to do it. We don't know how to relate to our children. Some of us, it's, it's a character issue. We don't have the integrity, the character to do it. Some of us, we don't necessarily have the competency to do it. We don't know how to relate. The benefit of all of this, though, is that we can learn this. These are skills. These are tools that we can truly learn and we, we can grow. And I'm going to suggest that if we had a choice for th- something we should probably try to improve in our relationships, if you want more trust in your relationship, I would suggest you forge more character. Use your relationship to forge more character. And I'm going to give you a few steps, a few ways to do that in today's Coaching Corner. Number one way to exercise your character in your relationship is to be more wholehearted. Put your entire heart into your relationship again. Now, I get it. It's scary. What if I put it in there and then my wife just gets on Facebook and ignores me? That's scary, right? Then you'll just be rejected. So what a lot of us do is because we're, we don't dare put our whole heart into re, in our relationship because we're so afraid of rejection. So we then have a half-hearted relationship. And if we have a half-hearted relationship, predict the outcome. That's half the benefit, half the intimacy, half the closeness, half the communication, half the connection, half, half of the truth. Uh, Brene Brown has a great quote that says, we spend far, um, we spend enormous energy trying to dodge vulnerability when it would take far less effort to face it straight on. One of the things that may keep us half-hearted in our relationship is we're just too vulnerable. We don't want to be let down. And one of the rules I suggest, and I, I just did this in a date night, um, that's basically talking about how to grow a, a, a healthier relationship, higher love, I called it, um, is that we've got to learn to burn our ships. Like uh, Cortez, when he came to conquer, he uh, when they pulled up, they, they, they left the ships and they, they didn't just leave them so they could hurry and run back and, and use them as an exit strategy. Cortez asked that they burn the ship or make them inoperable. So they really took the ships apart. They either took them apart so they couldn't float or they burnt them. And uh, that made it so there was no quick exit strategy from this place. You, you You couldn't just hope to not be fully invested. They had to go win the war. And why that might be important in our relationships is if we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. One of them might simply be the fact that I can constantly blame my spouse for our problems, and I'm always looking for, for you know, um, all, they call it shopping alternatives is what we call it in our relationships. Another thing we can do to, to increase the character in our relationship is loosen your grip. Whenever I feel like I'm too vulnerable to risk anything new, I might try to control everyone around me. And as I try to control them, I might demand more perfection from people. I might try to get my safety and my security, not from my ability to respond to certain situations, but instead I try to get it by making everyone else around me play up a certain role. I want everyone around me to be a better spouse, to be a better child, to not surprise me, to be highly predictable for me. And so I start controlling everyone. I might even demand perfection from everyone. Brene Brown has a great quote that says, when perfectionism is driving, shame is always riding shotgun. When I demand perfectionism from everyone around me, shame is going to go up because what I'm going to do is make everybody feel bad for not making me feel safer. 
the fastest way to handle uh, life is not to make everyone else around you be more predictable for your sake, but instead learn to loosen your own grip and handle your own insecurities and work on it. Another great way to work on it is to actually appreciate the gift you've been given. This is one of my favorite learnings I think I've had in the last, I don't know, two or three months is um, a concept given by C.S. Lewis that talks about we all have given gifts. We have things that we have been given that are beautiful gifts that are really awesome uh, for ourselves and our lives. And then we have what are called the expected gifts. The expected gifts are the things we've always expected to have happen to us. It might be that you've expected that you would get married and be married by now. But the given gift you've got instead isn't marriage. It just might be a really great friend network that, uh, that is very supportive and strong. Um, and uh, C.S. Lewis talks about an example of imagine that you are in a forest and you go looking for food. When the minute you're looking for food, you immediately have an expectation of what kind of food you, you want to find. Right, And so you come across some um, – let's say you're looking for berries, but you come across the mushroom and you don't want the mushroom because you were looking for berries. That's what you expected to get. But if you come across the mushroom, the mushroom is still a gift. It's still food and it would still be very valuable for you, but it's not what you expected and so you don't quite like it. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. We might keep walking through the forest and come across other leaves that might be edible, or we might come across, you know, other vegetables that are there, roots or whatever, and it's not what we wanted. We were still looking for red berries. I need red berries. And if we go through life and we're constantly overlooking the gifts that are given to us, the jobs that you do have, the kids that you have, the trials that you have, then um, you might actually be able to actually enjoy the things that are given. So one of the pieces of advice is start to identify your great blessings that you've already been handed and start appreciating them and do what you can with the given gift. Ah, Start there, for example. Um, One of the great quotes by C.S. Lewis says, the truth is, of course, that what one regards as interruptions are precisely one's life. What a lot of us are frustrated by in this world because it's interrupting our life is what life is about, right? The, a sickness, an illness, a problem, a child that's d- disruptive. Whatever it is, uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. So there are some basic principles, I think, for all of us. Appreciate the gifts that you actually have been given. Loosen your grip a little bit more and be wholehearted about your relationships in your life. If you do those things, you're going to forge more character, And when we are working with one another and forging character, it's amazing what we become. We all become a little more trustworthy, which is the goal, I think, of of our lives as well. We will continue learning together, folks. That's why we do this show, to help all of us become and be the good in the world. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Yes, it's time for more empty news right on here on the Matt Townsend Show. Jeffrey, what uh, other crazy things are going on out there? I know you love a good roach story. Oh, yeah. So uh, I, uh, I thought I'd share one with you. 
An entomologist who ordered 500 cockroaches for a study says she hopes the critters ran all over the thieves who stole them from her mailbox. Ooh, Would you ever steal roaches? Not intentionally, no. Hmm. Well, let's see if they knew about it. Rosalinda Vizina, uh, an entomologist studying roaches, says her neighborhood in Marina, California, has experienced an increase in mail theft recently. One of the boxes had been left open. It looked like it was pried open, and all the mail was gone. Oh, boy. So the post office was telling us about the mailbox thieves that have been happening all the way down the street. And uh, police say the thieves were likely hoping to nab a tax return or W-2 form, which isn't uncommon this time of year. But these thieves got more than they bargained for. Vizina had ordered 500 live cockroaches. The creatures were part of the study that she's conducting. I feel bad for the roaches if they get smushed or tossed or something like that. For the thieves, I hope they went everywhere. I think it's – what if it's a bunch of seagulls that just want some roaches? Hmm? Really? Why do we think it's going to be a human thief instead of a... Mine? Yeah. Mine? 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 <laughs> They're fighting over the roaches. Yeah. It's a roach fest. So, bad decision, clearly. Shouldn't yeah. steal mail. No. You, especially don't steal mail if it's got cockroaches. You never know what you're going to get now. Here's another bad decision. A Washington man driving a red Camaro with a vanity license plate. Have you ever had one of those? No. Hopefully, it wouldn't read dirt bag. He ended up under arrest Sunday afternoon after what police called a series of bad decisions. Oh, yeah. I think that's a Lemony Snicket's book. Yeah, Lemony that's a Snicket's great, a series that's a of great bad series. decisions. Yeah. Police said the 40 year old man is expected to be charged with first degree assault with a firearm, assault on a police officer. You should not do that. No. Malicious harassment, obstructing police, and resisting arrest after the incident at a car wash. Ooh. Uh, Police said they responded to the car wash shortly after 3 p.m. after reports of road rage incident that began with a minor rear-end crash between two cars in the parking lot. They said the driver of the other car got out to take pictures of the damage, and the Camaro driver got out and pointed a gun at the victim and made threats. Hold on. So Dirtbag pulled over to a car wash Mm -hmm. and had words and and then pulled a gun. Right. So the police had to uh, tase him. Taze it. No word on whether or not the Camaro made it through the car wash. Well, apparently not the Camaro may have, but the driver was what? probably shaken in his wet boots. What if this was the same guy? What if he was in a hurry because he ripped off the lady's yeah. roaches? I don't know. That's that's That might be a stretch. Which is why he needed to go to the car wash. Dirtbag. Be looking for him. Okay, folks, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here. Happy Wednesday to you. And uh, boy, today we've got a lot to cover. We're going to be talking with Dr. Brian Willoughby, five ways to have a better conversation, uh, I'm sure with your romantic interest in life. We're also going to be discussing uh, some of the news headlines with now um, students are staging walkouts across Florida 
um, to fight against uh, and to show solidarity about we've got to do something with guns and schools. It's just not acceptable. Uh, so we'll be getting to some of those headlines. And, of course, we'll be visiting with our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what is coming up on their show at the top of the hour. And plus, we're going to try to figure out what's happening to Jeff's eyes. His eyelids are slowly deteriorating to the point of, I'm sure by tomorrow, he won't have them anymore. This is, I mean, if if I would watch Will he be about, lid- lidless? Lidless. Wow. He'll just have eyelashes. If I were to watch 10 sappy romance movies, this is about what my eyes would look yeah. like. Yeah. But I think it's dry. It's got to, And maybe your wife's using a different uh, detergent. Well, not to put any blame on her, but when she saw my eyes yesterday, she said, I want wow. you to rub this lotion uh-huh. on your eyes. And I did that. And they were twice as red, yeah. at least. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> was that her goal? Maybe. To make you, maybe she's playing with you. No, but last night she put some other lotion on my eyes, and they're not as red as they were yesterday. Yeah. Well, you look – I think you look great. What I mean, what if I'm pulling the wool over your eyes? What if I'm actually trying out new makeup and I'm passing it off as something else? And I just well, didn't, want, that's weird. Just didn't that's want to creepy. make you feel uncomfortable. Well, it – didn't work. <laughs> now I'm now I'm really uncomfortable. Uh, so much to be covering again. Um, if you've uh, been watching the Olympics, I had a chance to watch a little bit of it recently. I loved the biathlon. I watched. Speaking um, of guns, I watched two different events yesterday. What did you watch? I watched um, the figure skating event, the couples figure skating event, where they attempted the Pamchenko move. Yeah, and uh, the I also. What? I also watched another one. I haven't finished watching it yet about uh, there's a bobsled team from Jamaica. Yes. And is their, it a female bobsled their team? Their coacher is a disgraced uh, former gold Olympian himself in bobsledding. And uh, it's, it's really – they've got this really fun jingle about oh. Jamaica. You dead man. Yeah, man. Okay. Um that's interesting because the only line I know uh, that's a pickup line is is about Jamaica. Really, Jamaican me crazy? Uh huh. Jamaican me crazy. So I I watched actually the Cutting Edge and Cool Runnings. Oh, okay. Films that's, about yeah, the Olympics. What, yeah, that's what you've been doing. Um. Yeah, I just watched the Olympics. And apparently the U.S., a little behind in the medals. We have the biggest team we've ever put together for an, uh, a Winter Olympics, and yet we're still in fifth place in as far as the medals go. I blame the Russians. Well, there is a Russian conspiracy. Yeah, so that's going on as well. Lots to cover there. Plus, uh, there might even be some movement toward bump stocks. I guess the president said he's willing to look at bump stocks and also uh, willing to sign anything or something about um, guns and background checks. So he's showing a little bit of interest in getting some legislation moving. Also possibly raising the age on when you can actually purchase a weapon. Really? Purchase a gun. Like to 21. 18 to 21. Yeah. Because the the boy that was involved in the shooting had uh, an assault rifle that he had at, legally at age 18. Mm-hmm. Actually, he had seven or eight. He couldn't get a handgun until he's 21. 21, that's a law. Yeah. But he could get an, an assault rifle. Wow. 
Yeah. Seems a little backwards. Anyway, we'll get to all of that fun stuff. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? The Department of the Army has recognized three of the teenagers killed last week in the mass shooting at uh, Douglas High School in Florida, giving each one a medal of heroism, the highest honor for junior ROTC students. Peter Wang, Elena Petty, and uh, Martin Duke were all cadets in the Junior Reserve Officers Training Corps, and their families have either been given or will soon receive keepsake medals. During wow. the attack last week, Wang helped his classmates to, safely, to safety and was wearing his uniform when he was shot. It was his dream to attend the United States Military Academy, also known as West Point. Uh, the uh, USMA announced Tuesday it granted Wang posthumous... Uh, I'm not saying that right, am I? Post... Posthumous. Posthumous, there you go. Admission. In a statement, West Point called Wang a brave young man whose actions exemplified the tenets of duty, honor, and country. Wang was buried on Tuesday wearing his uniform. Oh, wow. So he's honorary in the the academy he wanted to go to. They're looking for the the heroism medals for these three that were part of the ROTC at the school that helped out. Amazing. The the petty girl is is a member of the LDS faith. And she has been going out doing community service work as well. So along the same lines, we uh, you mentioned it a few minutes ago, but uh, school walkouts in Florida yesterday, where high school students, in solidarity with the students from the Florida high school, going to the Capitol to talk to the legislators there, right. walked out of school. Today, it's happening in Maryland. Mm. Uh, also, the spokesperson for the NRA will be at a CNN town hall that's going to be tonight with Marco Rubio and other uh, state local leaders from Florida and parents from parents and kids from the high school where the yeah. shooting happened last week before it kind of it kind of gives it a different turn when the NRA spokesperson is going to be there yeah rather than just a bunch of people that are agreeing something needs to be done and then you it's have a, the NRA there to discuss what they're willing to it's a different game discuss. when you have students as the ones marching you know what I mean? It just—it's right. different. How do you fight that? Well, we'll see today. I'm well, they sure. are. They're being called crisis actors and well, right. fake, and they're yeah. manipulated Conspiracy by power theories, and yeah. all that. White House Press Secretary uh, Secretary Sarah Sanders on Tuesday claimed that the president uh, was not suggesting that the FBI failed to follow leads on the Florida school shooter because of the Russia investigation. Despite the president's own tweet. Yeah. Uh, there are 35,000 agents. Hmm. So the cause of this is that of a deranged individual that made a decision to take the lives of 17 other people, Sanders said, of Trump's Saturday morning tweet. That is the responsibility of the shooter, not the responsibility of anyone else. But as part of that weekend tweet storm, Trump said the FBI is spending too much time trying to prove Russian collusion with the Trump campaign after pointing out that the FBI missed all the many signals about the shooter. Sanders said Trump was really trying to say that the FBI should not focus on the hoax of the Trump-Russia collusion, hmm. even though he didn't say that. Right. Yeah. What are you going to do? Uh, stress and adversity weaken the brain's ability to learn and retain information early, or earlier research has found. Wow. So stress and adversity weaken the brain's ability to learn and retain information. Yeah, I've noticed that. But according to a remarkable new neurological study in mice... So oh. it's in mice. Regular exercise can counteract those effects by bolstering communication between brain cells. Lack of sleep, alcohol, diet, and other aspects of our lifestyles, especially stress, may dampen the flow of messages between brain cells while practice, fortif- while practice fortifies it. Yeah. Right? So stress hurts, but when you're... Stress bad, but go exercise, it makes it, I guess it 
neutralizes the repeat an negative action, impact. Repeat an action, and the signals between the cells maintaining the memory of that action can strengthen. Yeah. It's called learning. Yeah, memorization or you know, practice. It seems like a better solution might be get more sleep still, Yeah, eat healthier, mm-hmm. try to de-stress your life and exercise and do repetition. Right, but avoid stress. Yeah. Or try to minimize stress. If, by the way, all of this can. is if you're a mouse. Yes, only If you're not mice. a mouse, don't worry about it. You don't have these problems. Good stuff. Okay. This one I, I, I set aside. We have Dr. Brian Willoughby coming yeah. up. He's our kind of relationship. Yeah, he's talks the, about he's the family. romance he's expert. Romance expert. Uh, Matt, you're a counselor. Yeah, coach. Coach. Yeah. Uh, confidant to some. See. When it comes to relationships. Yes. You, you, you give public speeches. You mm. talk to people. You, you claim there's humor. There's been humor before. I've been there. It was very funny. One has laughed at the event. Okay. This article out of of the uh, Huffington Post, eight signs a marriage won't last according to wedding photographers. (laughs) Yeah, I read this. This, I'm not sure these guys know what they're talking about. Uh, They're just observing things. So we'll let you you critique as we go. Some of them are very accurate. One of the partners is completely uninterested in photographs. That's supposedly going to cause a divorce? It just seems like they're not willing to memorialize this moment. Some people just don't like taking photos. Yeah. I mean, that could just be anxiety. That could be mm-hmm. social issues. Yeah. Okay. I'm just Two, the couple has more than 20% rejection rate on their RSVPs. No. Ooh. That, see, that's not another – that just might mean they're horrible at pick. The assumption here is nobody wants to go see this train wreck happen. But the reality is it could just be a bad day. Mm. You depends picked on a what, bad day. Depends on what they're serving at the wedding. Yeah, depends. Yeah, maybe the food, maybe the menu's not right. This photographer's like the uh, the couple that he's talking about invited 250 guests, paid the venue minimum of 200 plates, and only 60 people showed up. Yeah, that's a problem. That same couple came up to me, the photographer, and asked me if I wanted to invite my wife and kids to the reception because they paid for the dinners and nobody came. Mm. <laughs> But that wouldn't cause divorce. Would it? No. It's kind of a rocky start. Well, it also, it's just, I mean, I guess it's a sign of horrible money management. Or you don't have real friends. Yeah. You RSVP'd people you thought would want to celebrate this day, and they, yeah, I'm busy. Right. Sounds like a Twilight episode where a photographer would have a special lens that can sense whether or not the couple's going to stay married. Wow. Yeah. And what he's saying here is... It's very common to have about 10 to 15% of your guests unable to attend a wedding, but then when you get above 20 to 25%, you should start looking deeper. It's a telltale sign that your friends and family know that the couple is never going to work oh, out. Come on. Isn't it just a telltale sign that maybe you need to get new friends? Yeah. Ones that will come to your right. wedding. Right. And maybe we're making weddings a bigger deal than they need to be. The maybe chem- we don't even need a photographer. The chemistry feels forced. Yeah, that's... But, but by the way, feel, feeling forced is is up to interpretation, right? So, however, this guy, however, this photographer sees romance and chemistry mm-hmm. will be how he judges if it's forced or not. Right. I mean, yeah. There's infighting among the bridal party. Now that I, that makes sense. That, like family members aren't tension. getting along. Yeah. Eventually, that'll force somebody to have to choose: Do I love my parents or my spouse? That's never going to be good. On my way to one wedding, less than 10 minutes from arrival, my team received a phone call. It was the bride telling us the wedding was canceled. 
She was bitter in telling us that they were not just not getting along and there was fighting among the bridal parties and between longtime friends. So yeah. people were just fighting. Mm. Uh, five, the couple isn't on the same page about finances. That's huge. Number one thing couples fight about. Hmm. How, so, does that, how does that conversation come up during the photo session? Well, you're trying to get paid. Hmm. Well, yeah, and I can't believe we're spending this much money for photos. This is crazy. This wedding is taking me to the cleaners, my this sister, is the quote. My sister could have taken the photos. We didn't even need a photographer. She's almost a photographer. Why would you be saying that in front of the no, you'd, photographer? You'd just be doing it behind the photographer's back. Okay. The, the couples make sarcastic digs at each other while taking photos. Yeah. No, right. Like, hey, come here, Tubby. You don't look fat in that dress at all. Yeah, like a dig like that. That's that's going to uh, – That's that's great. It's a sign that it's over. The worst I've seen is in her bride telling my staff, I'm done kissing him. That's Whoa. it. I'm done. So it's Holy already God. over. Mm. That was on the wedding day. That's wedding day. You're taking the photo, so it's soon after, right? I'm done. He's smearing my makeup. I don't remember getting that one. Yeah. Some couples say they're just joking, but there's truth behind oh. the digs. Yes. JK. The relationship seems built on physical attraction alone. Yeah. But by the way, how would a photographer know that? That is a great question. I mean, the photographer is with you a total of what? Three hours in your most stressful time of your life. <laughs> they don't know how you're going to perform two a- weeks a- later. Apparently, he's uh, interpreting body language and what poses they wanted in the photos yeah no everything's going to change in about three years when there's a baby and <laughs> seven years when there's a second baby finally the couple hardly spends any time together at the reception yeah that's interesting i've seen that Well, you got a schmooze yeah. like you were talking about you're trying to Wait get as many presents as you can in mm. to the storage bin so you can skedaddle you're trying to collect your checks you got to press the flesh. It's like a fundraiser for a politician, but it's your it's your wedding night. Should the couple move as one through the room together? Yeah. Now here's what I learned too. It's it would be nice, I guess. The problem is, you some people don't. So I, I might only be there really to see your parents. I don't even. Yeah. I don't even know you two. That's right. But no, your like... mom and dad sent me an invite. I felt obligated. Actually, my wife did. So we showed up. Hey, congrats. If I know you, I want to see you. But sometimes maybe dividing, conquering might get through more people. We right. had a, At my daughter's line, we didn't even get through the whole line. We had people waiting in line, and then we had to hurry along. So, yeah, it was a nightmare. Yeah, we – there was many, many people there simply for my parents. Yeah. Right. So we actually broke it off. It would have been smarter that, my, that the parents go stand in different places. Mm-hmm. And then anyone that wants to see us comes to see us. Then they can go see the bride and groom together. It's nice to feel important, yeah. though, to have people lining up to see I you. Know, that's It was a nightmare. <laughs> that just takes way too much time. And a lot of, a lot of energy goes into this one event mm-hmm. when really the, the event isn't a billionth as important as every event thereafter. Can't so. everybody just get in a big circle and you just scan the circle and acknowledge everybody and then let's break. Let's go and eat. And then let's dance. Yeah. That was weird. Then I had, we had to hurry and break off so we could go do the father-daughter dance. Yeah, I made sure there was no dancing. No, but when you, with your little daughter, she's going to want to dance with her daddy. It would be great. We'll not dance in public. It would be great. 
Wow. It's just a slow dance. You we'll just, just close, slowly... close the curtains, turn on the stereo, and we can just did dance you, and live. Did you have like dance bouncers at your wedding reception? No, there's yeah. just no music. There was no dancing. They were the no dance. No bouncing, bro. It's like no a dancing. soup Nazi. It's like the dance Nazi. There was no room. No dancing for you. The place we were at was a uh, confined space. Yeah. More, more oh, just for eating. Let's, let's tell was everyone it where prison? it was. It was a prison <laughs> waiting room. <laughs> but it was great. It was so cute. It was nice. It's neat that your family, they let your family in. Yeah. And you had your, your black and white outfits on. Right. Actually, I think Terry's was orange. Yeah. Oh, yeah. More of a jumpsuit. Mm-hmm. It's a jumpsuit. Smelled like chlorine. Did have some uh, specially polished shackles yeah. for the occasion, so it was nice. So you had like a service project afterwards, I recall. We just kind of cleaned up. It was great. It was dressed to kill. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they did. Anyway, they had a great security check. Great thorough. security check. Yes. Yeah, very thorough. Um, it's love is everybody wants to have a say, and there are there's researchers that can predict your ability or your likelihood of divorce, like mm-hmm. palm readers. No, like real researchers <laughs> okay. that can tell certain things. Like, did you know that how you talk about your wedding you, when you fell in love? So, a great way to know, and you shouldn't do this to your friends. Say, tell us your love. Tell us how you fell in love, and then as they tell the story, you should be able to see how in love they are presently. Mm. If their story doesn't come out like a fairy tale, but it's more like you know what we were young, we hardly knew each other, and we just, ah, you know, we just wanted to get married. <laughs> we made it work. That, that's not a very beautiful fairy tale you're you're telling, right? And so you can you can get a sense of oh. My story involves heckling a teacher, yeah, and um, curling. We've talked about that yeah. before. Oh, because is that because you you actually married a teacher? No, I met my wife at school. We were in the same class, yeah. and I kept pointing out to the teacher that she was wrong, and my wife thought that was funny. It's romantic. Yeah. This is um, Jeff's love song, Little Nat King Cole. This is the first song he sang to his wife. Hmm. Really? As they were putting cold compresses on his eyelids. And he still got married. Yeah. She felt bad for him. Is that the really the fairy tale is that you can sing and yeah. she didn't run away? It was a beautiful time. It's amazing. So are, you, are you saying that my falling in love with my wife was more of the Florence Nightingale syndrome? Yes. Oh. Like, she does like take you were care a of a wounded me. veteran and or a wounded warrior, and she felt bad for you and saved you, and then decided to marry you forever. She does take care of me. She rubs my feet. Oh wow! You know, with the the uh, oil that is supposedly, if you rub it on your feet, yeah. you'll feel better. I think it's ten W forty. I think she and I both know it's malarkey, but you know, you'll try anything. She's yeah. rubbed my eyelids last night. Well, I think she rubbed them too much. <laughs> they're pretty raw. Anyway, love, folks. Straight ahead. Dr. Brian Willoughby will be joining us. Five ways to have a better conversation. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Is when I fall in love with you. He's here, Dr. Brian Willoughby. He's an associate professor in the School of 
Family Life right here at Brigham Young University and uh, also is an expert in the areas of dating, sexuality, cohabitation, marriage formation, and marital attitudes and beliefs. He's the co-author of the recent book, The Marriage Paradox, and today he's talking about five ways to have a better conversation. That's right. And I guess the assumption is we want to have a conversation. Right. That's the first step. They actually want to. A lot of people don't understand why talking matters. Right. They think it's just like a gender thing or one gender wants to do it and the other just wants to touch. Right. But talk about it because conversations make stuff happen. Right. And and actually, this is something I I talk about a lot with my students in my intro classes because we have to fix a, a myth people have about conversations. Which is they think, well, the point of talking is is to help someone else understand you. You, right. right? This, this is about you understanding my opinion right. or maybe changing. And w- the first thing we have to correct is, is to say that conversations and communication is really about sending information and then interpreting that information. It has nothing to do with change. Yeah. Really at all. No. Even though that's, that's 90% of our conversations are are based on that change. Right. And I say, actually, you know, according to communication experts and relationship experts, as soon as my intent is to try to change something about you or about us or about anything, we're no longer technically even communicating. It's not even just bad no, communication. Now, yeah. If you talk to a communication expert, that you're not communicating. Yeah, you're, you're almost just monologuing. You were, right. we, we had an expert on earlier that talked about the fact that we can tell from your tone if 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 you're using a trust a trustworthy mm-hmm. tone right or your aggressive level mm-hmm. your aggression level or your competency level we can yeah. just hear it right exactly so if i sense you're trying to change me right and and th- and that's the important thing to understand about like you said with conversations is that we're trying to understand each other and i'm sending all these messages that are not just verbal they're nonverbal it's tone it's body language it's based on our previous history mm. and the intent is to help understand each other in different perspectives. And and the big part of that conversation is not just then I have to think about what messages I'm sending, but I also have to think about how am I interpreting yeah. those messages. So I guess one of the keys to this is um, to really make it less about you and more about even if you're trying to understand, I mean, it's about understanding the other. Where are they coming from? Right. Right. What are they thinking? Yeah, exactly. That's That's the intent is that I'm trying to understand your perspective. I'm trying to understand your thinking. Again, and that doesn't mean I have to agree. That's right. the other mistake people think is like, well, if I'm trying to be empathetic or if I'm trying to understand you, that means I have to say you're wonderful and right. I agree with everything you say. No, you don't no. have to do that, but I have to at least understand you. Yeah, and that will help me then know how to talk to you about the issue. Right, exactly. That's cool. So what are um, what are some other tricks, some tools we need if we want to make sure the conversation goes to goes somewhere and, and is right. and is actually a conversation. Right. A lot of this goes into what we oftentimes call active listening because that's the part we mess right. up the right. most. Right. Sometimes we're okay with with clearly sending messages, but it's it's what we do on the listening side. And it's not people think sometimes that well being listeners staring at you and yeah. nodding and, and <laughs> that, that's a part of it. You know, you're kind of validating with your body language. But actually, a couple of the really big things that sometimes people don't do is asking good questions Yeah, when I'm talking to you and, and, and asking questions that are going to invite more information. So one of the things we oftentimes do when we ask questions is we ask yes, no questions, right? Instead of asking more open-ended questions. <laughs> right. Right? Like, right. Like one example we use a lot is, are you angry? Yeah. No. No. Oh, okay. Are you mad uh, at me? No. No. Right. Oh, okay, good, because I thought you were. Yeah, now now we can move on, do something <laughs> else, right? 
Yeah. Um, instead of asking more open-ended questions like, well, how did this make you feel? Or, or what were you thinking when, when this was going on? Or what are your thoughts on this? Right? More open-ended questions that give me more information. Um, that's, that's a really big piece to this. And then another piece of asking questions is asking for clarification if you don't understand. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of a uh, big thing we don't do a lot in our relationships because we have this fear of incompetency. Mm. It's the same phenomenon when you get in a big classroom somewhere, a big group of people, and, and, and the teacher asks, anyone have any questions? And everyone looks uncomfortable. No. And, you know, 80% of the people have yeah. a question, but you don't want to look like the stupid one. Yeah. We do that in our relationships too. We feel like, well, I can't ask you a question because then you're going to think I'm stupid or you think I'm not going to, or you think I'm not listening. Right. But if you don't understand, if you don't, know something, then you have to ask and ask for that clarification. Well, and it, it's almost like we we might even think we understand. They, they might say something like, you just don't care. Right. And it's, that really should be like a, a great question is like, when you say I don't care, what do you mean? Right. Tell me more what yeah. that means to you. When what, Can you explain to me a time when you didn't yeah. care? And I start arguing, I care. Right. But I don't even know where she's coming from with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we start to get defensive. And yeah. then that's another negative communication trait is when we start to perceive an attack, we start to get defensive and say, no, I don't. Or just last night, I did this wonderful thing for you. Yeah. You shouldn't have appreciated that. Instead of, again, asking for more information, asking for clarification and trying to trying to pull out as much information as I can. Because isn't it really – it's more about them in a way, that, like their concerns, their issues. It's really about them. So you're listening to better understand how to approach them. Right. Yeah. And th- this is something we've talked about before, which is I think the hardest thing about good, healthy relationships is that my role is not about me in the relationship. It's yeah. about you. And so when we're having a conversation, I want to try to understand you. And then the hope, and I can't dwell on this, is that then your role is to focus on me. Right. I'm not supposed to focus on me. That's your job. Your and job. I have to trust, this is the vulnerability in a relationship, I have to trust that you're willing to do that. Yeah. And I guess um, I guess some of this assumes inherently that we actually are even paying attention <laughs> right. to what's going on in this conversation. Yes. Yeah. This, this is another thing that's becoming more and more relevant. The, the technical academic term here is partial attention, mm. um, which with technology is becoming more and more of an issue. And in oh, fact, yeah. uh, the, the full term is p- continuous partial attention because of how continuous it is in a lot of families. And it's the idea that we've got phones in our hands, we've got tablets, we've got televisions, we've got all this technology around us. And it's more it's easier now to be in a conversation with a romantic partner, with our kids, and to have that phone in our hand. And so we're giving them attention, but right. we're only giving them part of our attention. Right. And like I said, if, if communication is this process of trying to interpret signals and trying to interpret meaning, well, if I'm only doing it with 50% or even 70% of my brain, the likelihood of me making a mistake in that decoding process is going to be even higher. Oh, yeah. Immensely high. And it and it's – I guess it could be anything, anything we're multitasking with because it could be just doing dishes. Right. Mm-hmm. Or it yeah. could be making dinner and – we or watching a show. Right. So I guess do we need to turn everything else off? Go eye to eye. You know that's that's a common thing you'll hear. I hear people say, and I don't think it quite needs to be that. So you'll be say, "Well, put the phone down yeah. and turn everything off and go kind of in the hermit, yeah, you know, mode." And there might be certain times for that. You know, family dinner is a good example right. of you know it's probably a good time to put all the devices away and engage in good conversation. But actually, a, a, another important thing can be is is to say, you know what, if I'm in the middle of work on my computer, or if I'm doing something on my phone and my spouse or my partner starts to engage, 
I need to recognize that I'm not giving full attention. And sometimes it's as simple as, hey, you know, can you hold on just a second? Let me finish what I'm doing. Yeah. And then we can have, I want to give you my full attention. There you go. So give me a couple minutes to finish this up. And um, so it's, uh, um, John Gottman called that the bids and the turns, right? So right. you've got to notice when someone's bidding right. for your attention mm-hmm. and turn. Don't wait until like the kid tips his drink over and throws the fit. Yep, exactly. Notice they're bidding earlier. Yeah, and then if my partner says, hey, give me a couple minutes while I finish this up, I need to now not interpret that as, well, I guess I'm not as important as your work. Yeah, see? And say, well, wait, I'm going to interpret that as you are invested in me because you do want to give me that full attention. One of the things I've learned too is, um, is a lot of times a person asking you a question is just a bid. Right. For you to listen, they're not actually ask answer. They're not looking for your answer. Right. Yeah. So you almost have to discern. So we clarify when my wife asks me a question, I'll always clarify. So do you really want an answer to that or do you just want to talk about it? Yeah. This, this, as you know, is really common in the therapy room actually with new clients. Yeah. Is they'll do this all the time. Like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a little bit and see what you do with it. Right. Right? It's gonna have nothing to do with why I'm actually here. Yeah. But I just want to see how you're acting. You're right. We do that in our relationships all the time. It's like, well, I really want to talk about this or this is really bugging me. So let me throw a little question out and, and see. And, and that's part of in long-term in relationships, you start getting better and better at reading those more subtle signs yeah. and nonverbals. And you want to be as clear as you can. But there's also something to understanding each other's tone better. It's why newlyweds fight as much as they do. Uh, at least after they get past that honeymoon phase, because they don't understand their signals very well. No, right. We're speaking with Dr. Brian Willoughby, who's an associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University. He's got a great website as well. You can go check out drbrianwilloughby.com, drbrianwilloughby.com. And uh, I guess another rule that you you suggest is um, don't pontificate. I mean, if you notice that you're speaking considerably longer than they are, Mm -hmm. you're probably pontificating. Yeah. And I'd say that's especially true when there's conflict or disagreement. Yeah. Right. So if you're if you're disagreeing and you're trying to resolve some conflict, that's where that gets potentially really problematic if one person's dominating the conversation because then only one person's getting their messages out and it's going to be harder to compromise. You know, one thing that I do think is pretty normal in relationships is everyday small talk conversation. It's okay if there's moments when one person is dominating yeah. the conversation. You know, it's, it, there's times in relationships where one person's like, you know what? I've had a long day. Right. The energy's there or it's I not. I don't have it. I want to engage with You know, you want to go on that one hour long rant about the show you watched last night or work yeah. thing. That's fine. I'm go here. I, yeah. can be the, I can be the, the log that absorbs that information. That's normal. Yeah, that's cool. That's yeah. really cool. And then I guess an important part is – be be really clear if, if they're ready for feedback or not. Because sometimes, if you're giving right. feedback in your long, you know, diatribe, right. then they may not be hearing it after so long anyway. Right. Yeah. And just because one person is say dominating conversation in small talk, that doesn't mean that I'm zoning off and thinking about something else and not engaging. Because then that can be interpreted as well. You just don't care. Yeah. And another point you bring up in your article is if you don't know something, say you don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. but then, but then she'll think I don't know things. Right. Well, that's <laughs> that's the truth, right? That would be the truth. We, we can't all be as observant as, as wedding photographers right. as you were talking <laughs> oh, about. Oh man, so, I know. So yeah, if you don't if you don't know something, say that because that's the accurate information. Right. right? right. That, that in relationships, one of the worst things you can do is say what you think your partner wants you to say. Yeah. Because that that gets you in a long line of of 
problematic conversations and, and communication because now you're not being genuine to how you feel. You're not being genuine to your experience. And now they're going to be interpreting things right. that aren't accurate anymore. Well, and, and what about – so that – I mean like that's agreeing too easily. What about the one that seems to constantly disagree with you? Right. So that – That is almost – I'd rather you just say you don't know than that you always have to play the counter to my argument. Right. And and again, when – and this is a very common communication thing. If you're trying to win an argument, you're not communicating anymore, no. right? So if we're disagreeing, disagreeing, which can be fine, there's nothing unhealthy yeah. about disagreeing. It's how are we talking about that disagreement? So if we start to disagree, am I now asking, again, going back to the asking questions and saying, okay, help me understand why you disagree. Help me understand where this is coming from. Why do you think this way? Where are instances where you've thought this way? My role now is to understand mm where that disagreement comes from. Again, not that I'm going to agree with you. Right. Right? Because one thing we can do in a relationship is is we both understand where we come from. Okay, now I understand why we disagree. I still don't agree with your perspective, but now let's do solution. Yeah, let's work to that. What, what, what are we going to do with this information? We might not get on the same page. We don't have to agree on, you know, the, the best place to go for dinner tonight. Mm-hmm. But what, what is going to be our solution? Do you notice, too, that, I mean, there's sometimes that – there's a partner that's always trying to fix it for their partner. So their partner right. might just be wanting to talk, just almost mm-hmm. wanting to vent. Right. And then you, you've got the other partner that's like, well, she's bringing it up, so I, she probably wants my advice. Right. So then they're trying to fix it. Yep. And then that's where you get into this fun area of metacommunication. Yeah. Right, where if I notice that and say, oh, my partner's always trying to fix me, well, then I need to communicate that and say, you know what, I, I feel like – a lot of times when we have these conversations, you're trying to fix me. And then if I don't understand that, then I say, well, okay, well, help me understand. When was a yeah. moment recently where you felt like that? What are you looking for? Okay, now I can understand. And we could be more clear that, hey, can I just – let me just run some stuff by right. you. I don't need it solved, but I just want to get it out mm-hmm. of me. Yeah. And, and back to some of our earlier conversations, we we can even create some good symbols and rituals around That's right. that. Say, hey, here's the code word yep. where your job right now is to just smile, smile and, nod. and nod. Smile and nod. <laughs> this is a smile and nod conversation. But it would be so much easier, right, than me trying to – how come I – how do I fix this with her friends? Right. She just – she obviously wants me to fix it because she's bringing it up. I wouldn't right. bring this up. Right. Exactly. It's almost like you're a different person. Yeah. I guess that gets to another point. Don't equate your experience with theirs. We right. are different people. Right. Exactly. And and that's okay. And that's part of what makes relationships great is we have different experiences, different emotions. But you're right. We have to be really careful because we all have our relative truth, our own reality. And we tend to um, project that onto right. other people. And so, oh, well, you went through this thing at work. Well, here's how I feel when I go through those things at work. You must be feeling the same way. Yeah. And then what that does is it short circuits the process because, again, what I don't do then is I don't ask questions. I just assume, well, this must be what's mm-hmm. going on. So now, like you said, let me fix it yeah. because here's what I would need. This is what I would do. And then I always hear uh, people that are that they try in a sentence to say basically, no, I'm, I, I know just what you mean. I know just what you mean. Thinking that that's enough. Right. You know, no, no need for more information. Yeah. Let me cut you off and yeah. now let me give you the solution. <laughs> Not good. Not good. And I guess the, the funny thing about this, Bri, do you – do we learn this? I mean it seems like if we're not intentionally trying to learn, you might unintentionally uh, learn a, a bad pattern or an inappropriate mm-hmm. pattern that almost ends up starving you eventually. Right. And there's, there's something unique about these long-term romantic relationships in particular and even our relationship with our kids that are different than most other – we communicate all the time, all yeah. day – 
with our friends and with our coworkers, right? Those are our two biggest groups for right. most people. You know, I guess you could throw social media in there too. That's a whole another topic. But if you think about peer relationships, they are largely solution-based relationships, right? We're either having fun and not talking much or we're saying, you know, here's this guy I dated or here's this issue I'm dealing with. What do yeah. you think I should do? And even work, work is a lot of solution-based communication, right? Here's the team together. Here's the problem. Here's what we have to do. And so a lot of our communication that we have on a day-to-day basis outside of our family and romantic relationships is more solution-based. It's more to the point. It doesn't have a lot of this nuance and 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 um, clarification that's needed in a relationship that's based on attachment and mm. romantic attachment and romantic connection. And so there is that switch sometimes that we have to switch yeah. when we get home or yeah. when we're interacting with our family. So I guess – yeah, know your audience and right. and and learn. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no end to the learning around this. Right. Exactly. I mean, yeah. these conversations are it's just more learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, work. What, when it's is work. it easy? Come on, Bri. It's it's easy if you stay single. That's right. You just get really lonely. <laughs> you get and really then die lonely. alone. And and you still don't know how to do any of this. Right. I mean, necessarily. Interesting. Dr. Brian Willoughby is his name. Again, go to his website, drbrianwilloughby.com. Dr. Brian Willoughby. You can find out more there about the book, uh, his latest book, The Marriage Paradox. Again, he's an associate professor right here at the School of Family Life on the campus of Brigham Young University. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. Thanks for being with us. Up next, our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Get down now to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation and find out what's coming up on their show today. Hello, gentlemen. Hi, Matthew. Hello. Welcome back, my friend. So, so good to be back. Hi. Um, you know what? Have you guys, uh, have you had the cold yet this year? Uh, it's funny that you bring that up. Uh-oh. Tamiflu is an expenditure this morning, Matt. <laughs> Did you? You had to shoot the Tamiflu. <laughs> That's good. Oh, yeah. You know what? Yeah. I'm feeling something coming on. Jeff obviously has it. Either that or he's got major eye infections. Um, but He's got the Costas. Is that what it is? He's got, is that what we're calling it? The Costas. <laughs> it is the Winter Olympics. Oh, that is Bob so Costas sad. used to be on Olympic coverage. Bob Costas has a little pink eye and everyone freaks out. And now it's called the <laughs> a Costas. A little pink eye? It used to be called conjunctivitis. Now it's the Costas. Dude, that was the red eye of death. <laughs> that was so bad. I think, is it my camera or is it that he's really got red eye? Um, so, okay. what? Uh, by the way, any favorite Olympic memories so far? Uh, the 17-year-old kid has been kind of a fun storyline developing. Red, uh, what's his last name? Already? Auerbach. Yeah. Uh, no, I think it's Auerbach. a different Red. Come on. I'm looking it up. Red. Steven already works here. Olymp- anyway. Yeah. He's 17. I found out last night that after he won his gold medal in slope style on the snowboard, he flew to L.A., did interviews, and then flew to New York, did inter- more interviews with Jimmy Fallon and whatnot, and then flew back to Korea to compete last night in big air. Are you serious? I didn't, I didn't think you could leave the Olympics. Well, like, these what? athletes are winning, then they're leaving. So he traveled like over 16,000 miles in the last week to make his tour. Hopefully he put that on his card. And well, went back to compete last night. Why can't they just like do a remote shot? I don't know. Come on. Uh, NBC's over there. This is why we're probably not winning as many medals as we used to. 
What's funny is, yeah, if well, that's Red good. Gerard is his name. Red Gerard. Red Gerard. <laughs> that's Related cool. to Steven Gerard, the soccer player. 17 years young. Man, he is a baby. Like, you see him and you're like, I can't believe he's even 17. Yeah, that's amazing. That's it. Uh, this, you can't I'm, vote, but you can win a gold medal for your country. That's it. Snowboarding is, it's becoming, it's, it's like our anchor sport now. Well, if I have a theory, if you create the sport, you You're, should you be should be really amazing. good at it. That's true. That's so a good like, theory. A Canadian created basketball in America. Mm-hmm. So we, but it's an American sport. Let's it's an American sport. Canada, yeah. where you at in hoops? I don't in the Olympics. I don't, right. I don't see you right. anywhere. Um, that's our sport. We should dominate. We. we By do. the way, Canada's leading us in the medals. Not that it should matter, but we do. Yeah. We, did, we did take the biggest team, uh, Winter Olympic team, uh, number of people we've ever had in the Winter Olympics, and we're we're struggling getting the. Yeah, the uh-huh. so we should probably be better. Yeah, what do you do? But listen, like the Scandinavian countries always compete well, and yes. uh, that's it's just easier for them. What do you let's, think about? Let's see you in the summer too. I love the bio. Exactly. <laughs> where love- you, hey Norway, where are you at on, on track <laughs> in track and field? You don't run as easy without the ice, do you? Um, biathlon this. Yeah, except don't say that because they got guns. <laughs> well, Nothing worse than a biathlete that you're making fun of. Norway, I believe, uh, 87% of their medals have come in cross-country skiing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They've mastered it. I mean, that's how they, get, that's how they commute. Norway, Norway peaked in the 1300s with the Vikings. <laughs> right? Is that when they peaked? <laughs> That or the whatever Oli- the Vikings Peaking were. in the Olympics right now. Yeah, they seem to be. Congratulations. <laughs> hey, um, did you hear about this Chiefs lineman, um, who La- Laurent Duvernay-Tardif, who is, he wants, he's about to get his medical degree, and he wants to have on his, his jersey Duvernay-Tardif, MD. What in the world? <laughs> so he's, he's Isn't I guess. is there another dude that, for the Ravens or something, that was uh, in the offseason, he would get, he got a. Graduate degree of some kind. I'm not sure if yeah, how a cool. Degree. Then you put like PhD. that would be interesting. Call me doctor. Yeah, he was a mathematician apparently. Mm. So I, I think if the we doctor Matt Townsend show. Don't you think if we could put like Ocho Cinco on a guy's jersey or he <laughs> yeah, hate you're right. Him, yeah, you're right. Then we ought to be able to put MD on there. Yeah, but then pa- don't you Pac-Man think Pac-Man Jones? He's all exactly. Then he, but then he's got an obligation. If he's out there and someone gets hurt, he he's got an obligation to help. Does he diagnose himself? Yeah, he'd have to. That's a concussion right there. I heard that a mile away. That's what he'll have to say. Oh, God. Hey, um, what's coming up on your show today, gentlemen? Today's loaded, man. Of course. Wednesdays typically can be a slower day. It yeah. ain't slow today, baby. We going. Yeah. Uh, we are loaded with drama, Matthew. Ooh, 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 what? Fired up head coach and Dave Rose. Why is he pounding the table <gasps> talking to the media yesterday? Scary. Uh-huh. What does it have to do with Russia? And international players. Really? Yeah. Yeah, Olympic athletes from Russia. <laughs> Russia ain't in the Olympics, but they're on BYU Sports Nation today. This is exciting. Okay. What, what role would transfers play on this year's team? We have kind of a report of what some dudes who have transferred from BYU are doing. A trifecta and... of guys have found success with their new programs after leaving BYU. There is you a go. clean slate a good thing for the football coaches? Should they be aware of what happened last year with those players? Should they watch the film or not? Uh, discuss that. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, our question of the day. In the spirit of Louisville having to vacate 2013 and 2012 Final Fours. Did you hear about that, Matt? No. They uh, they had some sanctions. They appealed. Oh, they lost. Yeah. 
Oh, so the I didn't NCAA know is making lost. them vacate. Okay. They won the title in 2013 yeah. and they went to the Final Four in 2012. They got to take down the banner at the KFC oh, Yum Center. Wow, that's KFC a big deal. Yum. So our question is, which BYU result or outcome would you like to vacate? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Let's take a positive spin on it and vacate something that we want Let's to vacate. Get rid of the negative. Yeah. How about Let's last blot year? It out. Yeah, just last year. We'll talk to Jeff Judkins, women's hoops. Why the three seeds better than the two mm. for his team, and it's not even close. And Hayden Rogers, a left-handed pitcher from the baseball team. They're 3-1. and one. They're playing at Hawaii. He's in Hawaii. It's going to be 7.30, 7.40 in the oh, morning. Oh, I feel so bad him. for him. What a sacrifice. <laughs> to get up early in Hawaii, even in though Hawaii. he's on Utah time still. Come on. Probably so been up since 4 o'clock in, in the morning Hawaii. there. Oh. Man, you guys are you're a tough crowd. But poor guy. I mean, he's got to get up, and then he'll probably have to go on a walk on the beach. So same, sun. same thing with Spencer yesterday. He recently spent some time in sunny Southern California. Really? And he was uh, trying to make us feel bad. Yeah. I do feel bad for the guy that has to get up early, though. But not, I mean, I've. That's be, us. I, I'd be honored <laughs> to have to to get to speak to Spencer and Jerem. They're the best. In about four minutes, you're going to just have a, a full cup of BYU Sports Nation. You won't want to miss it. But before we let you go, we always like to do a hero story. And today's hero is a 15-year-old student who was shot five times during last week's massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and is credited with saving the lives of at least 20 other students. A fundraising site said Anthony Borges was shot in both legs and his back while attempting a clo- uh, to close and lock a classroom door last Wednesday. 17 people were killed during the shooting. Borges' friend, Carlos Rodriguez told ABC's Good Morning America that the two rushed to his side in a nearby classroom when they first heard gunshots. He says no one knew what to do, but that Borges took the initiative to just save uh, his other classmates. Borges' father, Royer, um, says that he his son called him while he was laying on the ground after being shot. The father asked him to stay on the line, but at one point he couldn't hear the teenager's voice. He told me later that I had to drop the phone because I thought he was coming in and I wanted to pretend like I was asleep so he wouldn't continue shooting. Man, what a hero. Lots of stories of, of heroism come out of that uh, crazy event. But Anthony Borges uh, is above and beyond the call of duty. Shot five times. He's a 15-year-old. He is the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. Unbelievable, folks. We need people like this with this much character and integrity and just willingness to put others before them. And uh, we want to rev- honor it and, and hold it up as, as a standard for all of us. That is the show. We will be back again tomorrow to, to do more to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. But stick with BYU Broadcasting because BYU Sports Nation is up next. <laughs>